Hope you've been following our Music Box series on HBO. Our fourth film debuts tonight, Thursday night, 8 p.m. HBO. It's called Listening to Kenny G. It's directed by Penny Lane. It was a critic's choice in the New York Times today. It is available on HBO Max immediately as well. And you can watch it there if you missed the 8 p.m. showing Listening to Kenny G. It's a really, really good one uh, by a director that we love a lot. So check it out. Listening to Kenny G, HBO or HBO Max. This episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast is presented by State Farm. If you ever been in an accident and you're okay, but you know what happened? Your first reaction is going to be, man, why did that happen? If you ever buy a new house or a new car or a new anything, there's this little rush you get when you're like, I did it. I made it happen. But really, the only words you need to remember are like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to help choose the coverage you need. Have coverage options to protect the things you value most. File claim right on the State Farm mobile app and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. This episode is brought to you by Verbo. You know, it is stressful enough just with the airport situation. No matter where you're going, it's always packed. You're always worried the weather might be bad. Is my plane going to get delayed? You just want the actual place you're staying at to be a lights out experience. So if you've booked a vacation rental and you found yourself stuck making small talk with the host or you've arrived to find out it doesn't look anything like the pictures, you know, that's that's the worst. You could avoid the awkwardness with Verbo. Verbo has helped travelers find great private vacation rentals for nearly 30 years. You heard me correctly. So while other vacation rentals can feel like a roll of the dice, relax knowing you booked a Verbo. Book your private vacation rental in the Verbo app. We're also brought to you by FanDuel Sportsbook, which will be coming up later when we do Million Dollar Picks with Peter Schrager. Uh, we are brought to you by the Ringer Podcast Network, where I did a new episode of The Rewatchables. We finally did JFK, Oliver Stone's uh, flawed classic from 1991. It's the 30th anniversary in a couple of weeks. Me, Chris Ryan, Sean Fennessy, Brian Koppelman, we broke the whole movie down. We talked JFK conspiracies. It is a crazy podcast about a crazy movie. Check that out. And then uh, on Monday, we have another rewatchables coming. So we'll be back on the normal schedule starting Monday next week. Coming up on this podcast, going to talk Rams and Pat's Bills and Rogers MVP and Million Dollar Picks with Peter Schrager. And then a conversation you're probably expecting, especially if you saw the title of this podcast. Chuck Klosterman and I, uh, we're dying to talk about this eight our Beatles documentary, Beatles film, Beatles special. I don't even know what you call it. It's on Disney Plus. It's called Get Back. It's directed by Peter Jackson. And it's one of the most incredible pieces of content that's come out in the last 10 years. And uh, it's really important. We're going to explain by, why. We couldn't wait to talk about it. We deliberately avoided each other on text, on phone. And uh, it's about 90 minutes on the Beatles and I got to say, it's uh, it was really fun to talk to Chuck about it. So that's the pod. Football, the Beatles. What's what's uh, more high profile than that? First, our friends from Pearl Jam. All right, Peter Schrager said we're going to do billion dollar picks in a second. Let's talk about the Rams. What's going on here? Rams seven and four. Started out seven and one. Lost to Tennessee by 12. Lost to the Niners by 21. 
lost to Green Bay by eight in a game that honestly they weren't good in. And I never felt like Green Bay was even in trouble in that game, whatever the final score says. Stafford doesn't look healthy to me. He looks banged up, which is worrisome because he's looked that way for four or five weeks. They went all in on all these picks. I mean, on all these players with their picks. Put together this all-star team. McVay getting criticized now for what happens to him in the second half of seasons and offensive efficiency first half for his second half. It feels like a team under siege. And yet you look at the rest of the schedule. Home Jacksonville this week, huge favorites. At Arizona next week. Home Seattle. Seattle might be whatever. At Minnesota, at Baltimore, home San Francisco. There is a world in which they could just rip off six wins and I wouldn't be shocked. What do you think is wrong with this team? Well, you know, it. their last few games, they have had terrible turnovers. They have had pick sixes and their special teams has been atrocious. That's not going to win any, uh, you know, morning talk shows. Skip Bayless isn't going to be talking about special teams and turnovers. And we're not necessarily going to go nuts about that stuff, but you can't win football games that way. And I spoke to some folks there, not Sean this week, but other guys in that building. And they're like, you would think it would be end of times and everyone freaking out like it's not. And they look at Jacksonville as a team that they should be able to beat. And then they look at the rest of their schedule and say, look who we've lost to. We've lost to San Francisco, who played a punishing brand of football that knocked us on our ass, lost to a good Tennessee team, lost to a good Cardinals team, and now lost to a good Packers team. They don't have those five losses or four losses where there's three of them where you're scratching your head and you're like, well, how'd that happen? Um, I expect them to get right this week. I would also tell you they're not panicking, but there's also this piece of like, they're really hateable. Like from the outside looking in, no one wants a dream team. Like no one, no one's rooting for Odell Beckham to have this great career resurgence. No one's looking for McVay to be like, oh, it's great that the boy wonder was right. Like everyone is taking their shots right now and licking their chops and they need to lean into that. They can't be sensitive to that. They can't be um, worried about that. But like, look, Yosh Nyman and John Runyon Jr. and and Newman and Lucas Patrick, these are not famous offensive linemen. And they absolutely manhandled Vaughn Miller, Leonard Floyd, and Aaron Donald last week. That's some humble pie. Like, you need to be able to rebound from that and come into it. So I don't think they're panicking, but I think they know what time it is. And it's like, all right, it has to happen now couple things worry me. Stafford to start, the fact that he's already seems like he's 39 years old. And that's just, that's eye test. I don't don't know what kind of injuries he looks like, but he just doesn't look like he did the first week of the season. On both sides of the lines, they're getting shoved around. They seem like just a fundamentally soft team. And when we talk about Pats Buffalo a little bit later, this has been my favorite thing about the Pats really the last six, seven weeks. Like they're actually like a tough team. They're physical. And you think about Tennessee, what they were able to do to the Rams. Like, they just out-physicaled them, especially the Tennessee defense. Um, San Francisco, bully balled them. You know, that's a bad quality for heading into the playoffs. So that part's worries me. Then the other thing, who are the skill position guys that I'm really afraid of at this point? Cup's amazing. Cup's a top five wide receiver. Now we've already dropped off to Odell, who's really been a non-factor for three years. Their running backs, I would say they probably have the worst running back situation they in might. the league. Top three? Top three worst? And then who is like Stafford's security blanket on third and eight when you know the other team's going to double cup? What do you do if you're up seven in the fourth quarter and you need to run the ball and get some first downs? Can you do it? 
And then if Stafford is banged up, I think they thought they could control the game with Stafford. But if he's not at the same level he was at in training camp and at the start of the year, they can't do that either. So I think they're they're a sell to me. I don't think that's an overreaction either. I just don't like the makeup of the team. I like what the Packers have done. The Packers have had all kinds of injuries. They've persevered. They've had this crazy Rodgers situation really since before the season. Um, and... You know, I think they have to be taken seriously. And I, I continue to think it's going to be Bucks packers in that NFC title game, the Cardinal fans. What about us? What about us? It's like, all right, well, I don't know if your quarterback's going to be healthy. I don't know if I trust your coach yet to win a couple playoff games in a row, but I trust the infrastructure of Tampa. And I trust what I'm seeing in, with Green Bay, a team that's been successful the last couple of years. I don't trust the Rams. Yeah, and the Green Bay thing, you know, I mentioned their offensive linemen. There's also... Their offensive line coach, Adam Stenovich, who's now getting head coaching buzz as an offensive line coach, because when you lose Bakhtiari and you lose Jenkins and you lose Josh Myers and, oh yeah, Corey Lindsley signed for the highest you know contract ever given to a center in the offseason and you get better, yeah, that's that's awesome. And Rodgers is 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 locked in and he's doing it with again Marquez Valdez Scantling and Randall Cobb got injured in the second half of last game, but Cobb's been really good this year. Jones is hurt now. Exactly. So they've got injuries, but they're playing through it and they're finding ways like for the Rams to shut it all down and say, well, Robert Woods got hurt or Cam Akers got hurt. It's just not an acceptable excuse. It's not. You can't make that excuse. Because but at the same time, those are two really good skill guys that they really needed this year and would have completely changed the ceiling of their team. So I, I think at some point, I think Baltimore's like this a little bit, too, where I don't like their running backs either. If they had J.K. Dobbins, would I like their team more? Actually, yeah, I would. Yeah, yeah. I would like better. their team more. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think you have to start looking at health as we head into December, which is, I think, such an advantage for the Pats. The Pats, knock on wood. I'm going to knock on glass. Knock on wood. Knock on wood, Kyle. Um, the Pats have been really healthy so far. And they, you know, other than Gilmore, they have been able, and then they, they lose Trent Brown for a few weeks, start the year. They've had some stuff, but right now they're like really unusually healthy. The Packers are getting healthy. The Bucs are going to start getting their guys back. Although it seems like every time you feel like good about the Bucs, all of a sudden they lose one more guy or somebody else is iffy. So maybe, maybe that's part you of it. You know, it's you and Sal were talking about it Monday, but like it's one more week, but the season seems so long. Like, and it's and, and really how does. I see it is the injuries. And it's like, who's going to be standing at the end? Because last year the Buccaneers lost Vita Vea for a couple games. They lost... Um, you know, the defensive backfield, Antoine Winfield didn't play in the championship game, but then played yep. in the Super Bowl. The reason the Bucs were as good as they were at the end is because they were all healthy. Like, yeah, they already did not play in that NFC championship game. So it's right. a little bit of luck, but it's also a little bit of peaking at the right time. And, you know, you go right down the list, like the Niners, everyone's high on the Niners. They lost Debo Samuel and Fred Warner last week. Those are their two best players. Like that stuff matters. So oh, we'll be talking about it again. We're underdog parlay of the week a little bit here later. We go. Yeah, here it's we like go. hey, the, the Niners just literally lost their two best guys. I think we might have to zag against them this week. Um, I have another zag for you. What do you got on Fanduel right now? Mm-hmm. Regular season MVP odds: Tom Brady is three to one. Josh Allen plus four twenty. The actual MVP through 11 games, Aaron Rodgers, plus 650. So there's some weird off-the-field stuff drifting into this where it's it's like you were a dick in the offseason. I don't even you think it's the offseason. I don't even, I think this this whole... And, the, I, and then the COVID and he misses a week. 
And now it's like so... Kyle, I hope the camera's on. I really do. I hope the camera's been on the last 20 seconds. Are we saying Aaron Rodgers isn't allowed to win the MVP this year? Because if we're doing these odds correctly, he is the odds-on favorite, and it's probably not close. They're 9-3. and three. They've had injuries every week, including he missed a week. We saw what happened when the backup went in. It was a catastrophe. Seven points. And it's like, how is anyone more valuable to their team than Aaron Rodgers has been to the Packers this year? But now you bring in all the baggage, and that's why he's plus 650, and that's why Tom Brady's 3-1. to one. If this was an objective award that was given out by a looking at a piece of paper and statisticians pump out some robotic answer, sure. If this was done by a, a process where FanDuel uh, selects the MVP based on wins over, you know, whatever it is, fine. Um, there's a reason T.O. waited five years to get into the Hall of Fame. There's a reason uh, Roger Clemens is not in the Hall of Fame. There's a lot of reasons for the human beings vote on these things and the sports writer community might not be inclined to say, let's wrap our rounds around Aaron Rodgers after what went down uh, week 10 or whatever that was with that whole thing with the, with the fact I'm curious to see if sports writers can block it all out and say, is he the best teammate? Is he the best leader? Is he the, the best player in the NFL? Cause I think the answers might be yes, but they might be looking for a different answer and a different player to wrap their arms around in the NFL, have this prestigious award go to someone else this season. Yeah, it would be like a begrudging vote, right? I think it's so. Like, you were so good this year and your team was so good. I'm going to have to vote for you and I don't feel good about it at all because I could really couldn't come up with a better candidate. There literally has been no one, I mean, Brady maybe, but there's been no one as good as Rodgers when he's on the field. There hasn't been. Objectively, he's the winner of the MVP right now. Also, team is... He's the is, most important player to his team yes. of anyone on their team. It there's was a similar situation in 1975 in the NBA. Give it to me. I can give you a lesson. Pretty sure I'm the first person who's going to bring this up on a podcast this week because nobody would care other than me. But Rick Barry, who was the best player in the league in 1975, not well liked, right by the media. Not well liked. Um, 30 points a game that year goes into the playoffs, demolishes everybody, and in the MVP he finished fourth. Mm. And if you go back and you really look, it's like, all right, maybe McAdoo, I could see the case. The win totals weren't that different. McAdoo was like 35 game that year, but like Barry can't be lower than second. Finished fourth. fourth. I wrote about this in my book. It was like that, that, that was the level of animosity and whatever that he provoked from people were. People were like, yeah, fuck that. I'm not voting for that guy. And I do wonder if that's going to be Rogers this year at the same time. Like, Let's say that let's say the Bucks like barely beat the Falcons this week. I know. You know, let's say the Pats beat the Bills. How is Rodgers not the MVP? I know. And, but and, I think and, it's I think it's gonna be Brady because if they especially the way their schedule stacks up, it's a better narrative. People will feel he's a better teammate. You know, he went in there, he changed the culture versus like Aaron Rodgers, who kind of submarined the culture in a lot of different ways. But they're nine and three. No, and and the players will tell you a different tale. They'll say that Rodgers is still the man. He's the leader. Right. And like, they love him. Like, whatever you guys in the media or whatever the front office has to deal with, that's on them. Every Sunday, <clears throat> this guy plays hurt. He wins. And they they have fun out there. Like, objectively, he's the guy. It, the question is, like, I, I personally, I don't think I can, and I don't have a vote, but I couldn't give my vote to Kyler, even if he goes out and has a great finish. Like, three games out of the season, 
Yeah. They didn't play. Like, it's hard. Like, availability they didn't, matters. They didn't miss him as much as we no, expected. They went two and one without him. Yeah, Rodgers has a bye week this week. And in a weird way, his MVP case could be enhanced by a couple things that happen. Like, if the Pats beat Josh Allen... If Mahomes looks shaky again, so let me give you two names that I, I think I'm going to bet on. I I think TLDR. I think I'm going to bet on Rogers plus six fifty. It's it's not a bad long shot. I mean, it's just because of the other guys I get not wanting it. I I would throw two names out there that might pick up steam with wins this weekend. I think Joe Burrow, if they win a third straight game and this team starts rolling and they beat lost the to the Jets, not voted for. It's a good point. It's a good point. Who's the other one? The other one is if the Colts get going again and Jonathan Taylor keeps it going and like has one of nah, these crazy. They're not seasons. making the playoffs. Crossing him off too. All right. So Rogers, it is. <laughs> no, what keep let me let's go keep going through the far fetched. Lamar, ones. I can't after throwing four picks in a game last week. And Dak probably out too, right? Probably. For the way he's played the last four weeks. Yeah, it's rough. What if the they, Raiders go on a tear and Derek Carr, you say, okay, those three weeks where they lost, like that was a lot going on. They still finished the season 12 and five or 11 and six. And Derek Carr, and Derek Carr, he got uh, mocked by other players. You know, maybe the Taylor thing, they would have to run the slate, I think. Yeah. Right. They'd have to go 11 and six. And I don't the think guy. they, I don't think they can because I think the the blueprint was unlocked with them last week. Take can it I out. throw out a name? Yeah, what let's if, hear it. What if a team, I don't know, what are they called? The guys up in five? What if they don't lose another game this season? The Patriots. Could he win it? Uh, Mac? Wow. We Sal and I jokingly talked about this last week. A rookie I mean, has never won it, and I don't think he's the best player on the team. I don't think no, he's a top I, five player. However, I don't I don't see it. 80 to 1. Um, Mina Kimes, our friend, was asking me, has anyone ever won the executive of the year and the coach of the year in the same year? Because you could make, I mean, Belichick has to be considered the executive of the year when you think about the draft combined with all the free agent signings. Um, they they spent have been lights out. I think 168 million in unrestricted free agents. It's the most ever spent by I think 50 million. And like Bourne is their number one wide receiver. Henry's really good. Uh, John who looked good last week. John who looks good. Jalen Mills, Belichick really likes. And then Judon, Judon has been the Judon best free agent be, of the thing. He could be defensive yeah. player of the year. Like they really hit home runs. And people would say, well, John who isn't worth what he, don't worry about how much he's making. Does he make an impact? Yes. Is he a good part of the, yeah. Aguilar, does, Aguilar scored a big touchdown on Thursday night against the Falcons. Like they're all contributing. Ag Aguilar, even though the stats haven't been there, they still respect his speed. Yep. And he does, like, he's not a diva. Like, he he blocks. He does stuff. You know, he's he's helped. He hasn't been, like, a detriment. Mills is the guy, like, who drives my dad crazy. But even yeah. Mills has been, all right, the last couple of weeks. Yeah, it's, I think, one of the good things about this Pats team and why another reason why it reminds me of that 0-1 team is I don't even know who the MVP is. It's just a bunch of really good guys, and they've managed to stay healthy, and they're tough. And they... Have you noticed... Uh, Kendrick Bourne and Belichick. Have you been following any of oh that? Oh my all? God. Have I noticed? Bourne is like the most patriots y patriot. <laughs> Do you see when he got the game ball after and they were doing the stiff, stiff arm arms. stuff? Oh my God. I mean, Belichick's giggling. It's so awkward. Like he doesn't even know how to handle how, how much exuberance and like, and that was Bourne in San Francisco because he never put up huge numbers, but the 49ers guys loved him. They were like, right. Kendrick Bourne is like the greatest guy in the locker room. And maybe the word got round. He's leads the league, he leads their team in catches and yards and all that stuff. But his personality, his charisma, and his joy is like a welcomed new addition to this Patriots team. 
last thing, and then we'll we'll take a break and do picks. Chiefs. Chiefs are laying uh, nine and a half to the Broncos this week. And I wrote them off a couple weeks ago. It was a mistake. Denver, they've owned for a long, long time. They have won 11 straight. Mahomes has never lost to Denver. Their offense, by the pure stats, first and first downs, 281. Third down, they're 51.5%, which is insane. Like 40% is awesome yeah. on third down. You're like 45, you're like high-fiving everybody. Fourth down, they're seven for 11. And yet they're second in turnovers. So I actually did some research. I was trying to figure out like, all right, they, how many teams have averaged more than two turnovers a game? So you need to get to basically 33 in the old season. Now it'd be 35 for a season. Mm -hmm. So they're averaging exactly two a game now. And it's like, if they stay on that pace, they can do it. So all of these teams that average, there's been 10 teams since 2015 that have averaged more than two turnovers a game. How many of them do you think went 500 or better? Very few, maybe one. Zero. Really? 2019 Bucks had the most. That was the Jameis year. They had 41 turnovers that year. There were seven and nine. That was also the best record of all these teams. 2019 Panthers, 2019 Giants. Go all the way through. Um, all the records are four and 12, five and 11, yeah. three and 13. The last team that had over two turnovers a game and went above 500 was the 2014 Eagles. I don't remember who was the quarterback on that team. 36 turnovers. They somehow went 10 and six. I think the division was good. They didn't make the playoffs. Hmm. My point is, I actually think it's unrealistic for them to keep that going. I think, yeah. I think like, what if this was just a small sample size and 22 turnovers? Yeah. But some of them were dumb, right? Some of them hit shoulder pads. Some of them bounced in the air. There was a couple strip sacks, but if they don't turn over the ball, this is the best offense in the league by far. And the, the, the statistical whatever would say, actually, they should regress to the mean. We should have less turnovers over these next couple of games. And if that happens, this is a 38 points a game offense. Does yeah, that any got, of that make sense to you? Or absolutely, because no? those were freakish turnovers. They really were. They're off Kelsey's hands. Doesn't happen. Tyreek off his hands. Doesn't happen. Hardman cannot catch a ball. Doesn't. And let's say that they're just not terrible with turnovers. And it's just one a, one a game yeah, for three weeks in a row. Or it's like eight turnovers over the final five weeks as opposed to 15 turnovers. Like then, okay, that's that that makes it more sense. That, their whole thing to me, though, the turnovers are almost secondary to like their defense overnight around week seven. which is like, hey, let's be good. And they're one of the best defense in the league. And it's because of a few things. Obviously, Frank Clark is healthy and and you're making the change with Sorensen and Thornhill. But to a man, all those guys in Kansas City are like, we just had to get healthy. We just had to get Frank back. We just had to get into our groove. And they're dialed in. They held the Cowboys to nine points, man. The Cowboys are a scoring team. I think the Chiefs, this might, this week, Denver, they've feasted on them before. This might yep. be the start of, okay, let's do what the Bucks did last year and let's just hit out of the bye week and go. And Denver just is a zigzag team. Look good one week, look terrible next week. And they've been better without Von no Miller. Reason. They're three yeah. and one since Von Miller wore a jersey for them. And the one was when we bet on them on million dollar picks, which is coming Darius up right Slay after is this still break. running around the field. <laughs> Taking a break, million dollar picks next. All right, I'm not here to talk about the past, much like Mark McGuire. <laughs> we got killed for really the first time ever for us last week. We lost $874,000. The reason was 
Really? That, that Vegas, much? that Vegas Cowboys game destroyed us. We lost. You want to talk about how that. we experienced that game over text, you and me? Just it ruined my Thanksgiving. I, honestly, me too. They they get the coin toss. They're home. It's this is a wrap. The kickoff. They're all of a sudden they're at the seven yard line. There's a hundred flags, and it really seemed like if that it would seem like one of the five most fixed games of the year. I know it wasn't fixed, but when you're watching, you're like, wow. 28 penalties were called. So I couldn't even say it was one-sided. It was just no, every single time there was a play. And it was like Sean Hockley got to speak on the mic to 35 million people 28 times. And I'm like, that's not fair. No one wants to see him. Nobody. Not one person. So anyway, they lost us money. And then we we actually could have rallied, except Jalen Hurts decided, oh, where'd he you go? know what? I'm going to have the worst game of my life against this crap Giants team that couldn't even get to 13 points, couldn't even run out the clock. Didn't matter. And then Jalen Rieger finished us off there. And then finally, uh, we had Kirk Cousins, who I'm not going to say harsh things about because we need him this week. He's going to be in one of our bets. Of course he is. Um, but just, they just couldn't. He lined up under the guard. He lined up under the guard. He threw a two-point conversion over Jefferson's head. I still like that Vikings team. Anyway, we're back. I went back to the basics. I actually listened to a couple of our old podcasts trying to figure out what we were doing wrong. <laughs> you checked the tape. <laughs> I did. I checked the tape. What I realized was we were like on the fly trying to come up with the picks on the pod. I need to come up with the picks before we do the pod. And then we talk about them. And if like there's ever like one of the picks where you're just like, Ugh, then we then we veer off. But I needed to actually do the work versus like talk it out. Which We're going I did back this to week. basics. I, yeah, going I, back to you know, the I'm basics. a huge Sopranos fan. And there's an episode in the final season called Chasing It. And it's the most bizarre episode in the series, I think, because out of nowhere, Tony has a huge gambling addiction. Like for seven seasons, he didn't have all of a sudden he's betting all his money and he's chasing it and he's chasing That's it. That's you? And I'll tell you, and his wife, Carm, has the new house. They finally sold the house, 600000 And he's like, let's put it all in the Jets. And she's like, I'm not putting it. He's like, let's put it all in the Jets. And she's like, no. And then the next morning you see the newspaper and it says Jets beat Chargers 42 to 10 and he slams the paper. I feel like we're chasing it. I feel like I want to be a part of it. Let's Great. go. Let's do Let's it. go. Let's do it. Well, I have some good news for you. We've lost on teases the last few weeks. Might have tried to force them. I have no regrets. Last week's tease that lost, the big one. The Pats. We had the Bills. We had the Pats. Pats easily. Bills easily. And then the Cowboys, we don't, we find out right before the game, CD's not playing. I got a little nervous. The tease is back this week. Okay. This is, the tease is a safe space again. There are some very teasable games, including we're taping this early on Thursday. It's not even noon yet, Pacific time. We're throwing Dallas in one of the teases. That's why you Dallas, do an early podcast. Let's get yeah. them in there. Dallas is playing the Saints. That line's moved up to six. No, no Camara for the Saints. They don't have either of their offensive tackles. Neither one. They have Taysom Hill, who you know my feelings on him. I, I don't, I've never understood the Taysom the Hill. The opposite thing. of Minshew for you is Taysom Hill. Right. You have Lamb coming back. And I thought they really, really missed Lamb in that Raiders game. Like, it, 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 you know, it's like if Minnesota just doesn't have Justin Jefferson, I would feel less excited about taking Minnesota. Cooper seems like he's going to be back. We'll find out, I guess, when the when thing happens. But, I think Dallas got shook last week. The thing I love the most, I don't have McCarthy. He has to sit this one out. Little Ewing theory with McCarthy. I was talking about that with someone today, and I'm like, everyone thinks that's a negative. But yeah, like, are we sure it's a negative? <laughs> like, what happens if? 
So Dallas coming off a loss, which you got to like, if they do this, they got at Washington, at the Giants, home Washington, home zone at Philly. Three weeks from now, it could be like, Dallas, whoa, why not them? Why can't they win? Well, I we would have said that here. three weeks ago, Bill. If you looked at, oh, they got the Raiders at home. They got, I know. You know. I get it. We're throwing them in a tease. We're actually throwing them in two teases. The first one, we are going to tease our friends who've heard our feelings a couple times, but have also won us a lot of money, the Minnesota Vikings. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> How could you choose? I mean, they really have ripped our hearts out five different times and yet you, you know what I can't I can't quit them can't quit them I can't quit them they're seven point favorites against the Detroit Lions Minnesota's 10th in DVOA this year DVOA is like is that team eight and three what, what's yeah. their record they must be winning their division right they're just like now nah, you have to actually have to watch um, Detroit is 31st at DVOA they're 30th offensively and 28th defensively you could argue they have the worst coach too I mean, the stuff that he did on Thanksgiving and that some of the coaching, they called back-to-back timeouts. They're a complete mess. Goff is a disaster. They don't have DeAndre Swift anymore. I think the ship has sailed for them to win a game. And I just can't resist. I think this is where Minnesota, this is where it actually becomes more frustrating with them, where you don't have they them could have in been a week. This. Yeah. No, where, where you don't bet on them in a week because they burned yeah. you the last week and then they win. And you're like, oh, now I... I basically lost again because they scared me off, but I'm not scared, Peter Schrager. Okay, come on. I'm not scared. We're going to do a Dallas, Minnesota six-point tease. Tease many to one. Tease Dallas to pick them. And who's beating me? Taysom Hill? Jared Goff? Mark that one down. It's in. Second one. By the way, how about our... DeAndre Swift bet last week, three carries, zero yards. How many texts did you get? And FanDuel was like the day before they boost it. They make DeAndre <laughs> Swift the number. They were like, oh, we good news. We boosted the DeAndre Swift bet. We we somehow put the Maloik on him. He was done. He was done. We, we basically threw the horse head on his bed. He immediately I, got hurt. I don't I even think I saw him carry a ball. I, I missed I the start away. of the game. He was already hurt. I walked away from the TV for two minutes and I see Jamal Williams getting like five carries in a row. I'm like, what's going on here? <laughs> Unbelievable. Uh, next one. Remember Minnesota and Dallas? Yeah. Well, we're we're bringing them back for a second tease. We're gonna put them with the New England Patriots. Okay. Monday night game. So we're we're waiting on this one. Monday night game. Pats plus two and a half. Gonna bring them to eight and a half. Okay. I think it's a one score game either way. I'm just gonna make my case quickly. Go I for think it. The, I think the Patriots are better. I think they have a better coach. I think they're more well-rounded. More importantly, I think they're tougher. I think they can bully ball the Bills a little bit. I'm obviously scared of Allen. No White. They lose White last week. Buffalo. Best guy in the team, defensively at least. Um, they're, get, they're getting some offensive line stuff back. Feliciano looks like he's coming back. But You're a big John Feliciano guy? Yeah, he'd say he's good. <laughs> like him. Um, there's some good stats for him, but, um, I just think the Pats are really good. This will be Belichick has such a great history against Buffalo, which went South last year for one year, but now it's back. Um, I think they have a better team. I love that. I can get points. If I can get this to eight and a half and it's a one score game, here's my fear. I'm going to put it on the table right now. We talk about our fears during million dollar picks. It's a rookie QB on a Monday night. 
on the road. On the road. He could single-handedly submarine it. Mac. Now, I went back. I looked at Wilson. He had his one shit game as a rookie. Roethlisberger had a couple shit games, but Pittsburgh was so good that year. They, they could win like 13-7. Yeah. yeah. But they, they'd have, he'd have games where he'd have zero to these two picks and they'd win 19-7. Mm-hmm. Like it almost didn't, it was a bonus if he played well. Max, somewhere between those two worlds, right? It's a bonus if he plays well with the Pats, but they also, he can't do those Roethlisberger games. If he's zero TDs and two picks, You're not gonna they're win. probably going to lose. They, he's actually weirdly important to them. So that would be my fear. But um, I just like this Pats team. And we've been riding them every week and somehow not winning money from them because we keep putting them in dumb teases. But in this case, uh, the plus eight and a half. So that mark that one down. Minnesota, Dallas, Pats. Then a third one that the Pats are also going to be in. FanDuel, you can do nine point teases. Okay. Minus 115 are the odds. Pats to 11 and a half. 11 is the key number because once you get past that, basically the games are never 12, 13 points. It's always like 11 or 14. Mm-hmm. Pats to 11 and a half. The Chiefs down to 0.5. Chiefs just have to beat the Broncos in Arrowhead? Just have to beat the Broncos in Arrowhead. I think they can do that. The Bucks against Atlanta down to minus two. There was a split second where I was afraid of Atlanta in this game. Atlanta has four 20-point-plus losses this year. Atlanta's five and six. They beat Jacksonville, both New York teams, New Orleans, and Miami. Not impressive. Do you know who's last in DVOA? Atlanta. Is it the Falcons, really? I was stunned. Would you have guessed in a million years that Atlanta was last? Yeah. yeah, You know who's first in DVOA? Tampa. Hmm. So you're telling me I can throw this in a tease. I'm getting the number one team in DVOA after 12 weeks against number 32, and they just have to win by a field goal. Feel pretty comfortable. Feel good. I mean, how good was Gronk last week? I wish they had Brown. I still, but I Gronk looked like he was Gronk. unbelievable. He went seven for 123, I think. And Fournette. Fournette was great. Great. What, what about our guy? Our Super Bowl hero. He's our guy. He sent, De- it, he sent me his jersey. Yeah. Devin White. Devin healthy? White, they were hoping that he would get fully healthy. We're going to have to see game time decision, but, you know, Vita Vey is teeth out there. I can't tell you about Devin, though. I don't know. All right. So what do you think? Chiefs, Bucks, Pats. Bucks, uh, Pats all the way to 11 and a half. Bucks have to win by a field goal. Chiefs have to win by one. I'm in on it. Let's go. Okay. All right. Individual games. How you feeling about Bengals Chargers? Bengals minus three in Cincy. Make the case for one or the other. Okay. The case for Cincinnati is that they've kicked the shit out of teams the last six quarters. They're feeling themselves. The case against Cincinnati is that Everyone is feeling Cincinnati. The last time they were given their roses and their bouquets, they lost to the Jets. We've done this before. Less than three weeks ago, we crowned the Bengals and they beat the crap out of the Raiders second half and then just did what they did to the Steelers. They're at home. This fan base has not had a game like this in years. Could you see Herbert coming in there and just slicing that defense up? Potentially. I would maybe stay away. And yet, they're really fun to root for. They're dominating up at the line of scrimmage, and Burrow doesn't seem to be ever phased by the moment. Couple things. Feels like they can run on them. Mm-hmm. I think you can run on the Chargers. Can I, I don't think that's a hot take. I think you can bully them and run on them. Um, 
Chargers pass rush worries me a little in this game because we've seen teams come after Joey B. Yep. Um, but I also think they could throw on them. The big thing for me is, has Herbert looked good for like a month? He hasn't. Because I've heard, I've, I have him on every fantasy team I have. It's like, I, what, four straight weeks you watch and you're like, uh, are you better than Mac Jones? I know you have the cannon arm, but I, the game last week, I thought he was Perplexing. really like, honestly bad. I thought he was bad against the Pats too. So I don't know what's going on with that. And he that, was I think, really, really good the final drive against the Eagles. And then you're like, all right, that's his moment. That's his big game. Six minute drive, puts him away. Two first downs on fourth down conversions. You know, Herb, and then really big step back last week against Denver. Sertan picked him out off twice, but that doesn't even tell the story. Like he was off all game. So Baltimore, they score six by week. They lose to the Pats. He's bad in that game. They beat Philly by three. He's good in that game. Bad against Minnesota, lose by seven. The Pittsburgh game on Sunday night, which they came back and won, Pittsburgh had nobody out there. I Long mean, it coverage was, at the end. Yeah, yeah. And then somebody got hurt. And, but it Minko just like, was out. Watt was out. Yep. Yeah. That was like a corpse of a Steelers defense. And then Denver, like, completely throttled them. Completely. And it was one of those games, I think, when the thing I've noticed with him, and I really like him, I, I think he's yeah, could he's be great. a fantastic quarterback. But I have noticed, like, especially when he's like pressing a little, the ball's coming out at like 200 miles an hour. That Eckler and play at the end. The Eckler, the Eckler play. play was a 90 mile per hour fastball. Eckler's got great hands, bounces off his hands, Sertan takes it to the house. So in Cincinnati, I worry about that. I worry that Cincinnati is too bandwagony. It's a 10 a.m. game or Pacific time. That's good for, you know, the West Coast, East Coast thing. And as you said, I really kind of, probably the biggest Bengals game in a few years. Yeah. It, you know, it's interesting because they they manhandled the Steelers and I wrote about them for Fox this week and I heard from a Bengals staffer and he's like, you got to give credit to the offensive line. These guys, it's Jonah Williams is finally healthy. Riley Reef is playing well. And it's like Quentin Spain and Trey Hopkins. Like no one wants to talk offensive line on on television or these podcasts, but like that offensive line is as patchwork as it gets. And remember, they took Jamar Chase and they passed over Sewell and Slater and everyone went nuts. Their offensive line is protecting Burrow this season. And yep. when he does get sacked, it's because he holds Except on against to the, ball. the Jets. Right. Except against the Jets. But, uh, and their defense has been all, you know, they their free agent signings were like Mike Hilton and Eli Apple and Trey Hendrickson. All those guys made huge plays last week. And they're veterans. I, I like the Bengals in this game, but I'm cautious just because last time everyone crowned the Bengals, they gave it away to the Jets. One game that you like, I think, more than me is you like the Dolphins against the Giants. Make the case for that. Giants, if they were going to get a bump, it was going to be last week. Here's, here's Freddie Kitchens there. Here's what we got. It didn't look good. They beat the Eagles, but they did not play well on offense. And Mike Glennon could very well be the quarterback in this game. And I don't trust Mike Glennon uh, as being better than Daniel Jones in a big spot. The Dolphins, meanwhile, four straight wins. Jalen Phillips playing awesome last week, three sacks. Jalen Waddle has 77 catches. He's fifth in the league in catches. They found a way to use him. And there's like a little momentum. They've got. Do you have the Dolphins' schedule up there? It's as easy as it gets here on out. Like They feel like they can make a run, and the Giants is a winnable game. Well, we made the case either with you or with Sal. I think it was with you, though. About, it was last um, week, yeah. It was about the... Uh, no, it was two weeks ago. It was like the case for could Miami be seven and seven in a couple of weeks? 
and we're all going, wait, what the hell just happened? Um, there's a world in which we could tease or we could parlay Miami and the Chiefs, the Chiefs money line. The four and a half scares me with the Miami game. I don't Doesn't like seem it. Big enough, or it's too big. It feels like a point and a half too big for me. Okay, because it's people getting super excited about a Dolphins team that beat a bunch of crap teams. Honestly, that's true. You know, and not that the Giants are another crap team, but we have the ability. We could put them with the Chiefs, and they would be minus one sixteen if we like the Chiefs. I do like the Chiefs, and I do like that bet. Okay. All right, so we have that. And then underdog, let me write that down. And what then, do we say uh, on Bengals? Stay away or go for it? No, I think we're going to, I think we marked that one down. Let's go for it. Um, They're fun to watch. And then last but not least, underdog parlay of the week, which we've had bad luck with, just point blank, including <laughs> the Lions. The Lions on Thanksgiving. No, we're going to hit one of these. We have bet on the Lions, I think, 11 of 12 weeks. Maybe that week. was our problem. Maybe, maybe he, we've had the Lions at least in three of them. We got Washington plus 120 in Vegas. We had the Steelers plus 148 against the Ravens. We had the Seahawks plus 144 against the Niners. And the one that jumped out to me was the one that jumped out to you as well. Seahawks against the Niners. And then Washington basically, all right, plus 120, not huge odds. No, but but let's let's go. And it's around like plus 440. Talk to FanDuel. They're going to make it the underdog part of the week. Give us a little boost. I don't know what the final number will be on FanDuel, but for us, we're going to make it plus 550. We're going to boost okay. it for ourselves. So Washington to beat Vegas. Why do we think Washington's going to beat Vegas? They're good. They're good. They, they absolutely slaughtered the Seahawks last week. They're not going to put themselves in harm's way. They control the ball. I think they had 41 minutes of possession. They could take the air out of the ball and hang with Vegas. Absolutely. And it's more like, do we trust Vegas two yeah, weeks in a row? I mean, Is that a complete exactly fluke? Right. It is frustrating as hell to bet against the car, I will say. I know. He's so good he, sometimes. When you bet and... on him and you know, like within a quarter that he's going to suck, it's like, oh, he, oh, I bet on the Derek Carr who sucks today. Yeah. And then you have the other ones where it's like, I'm so fired up, I bet against Derek Carr in this tease. And then he becomes the guy who's throwing, the, getting the PIs. Does anyone get PIs better than him now? No, we, we, I mean, especially with Deshaun Jackson just running as fast as he can. Here, Here's where we learned it. We we bet against him against the Bengals, and it was like, yep, that's the Derek Carr we know in the second half. And then we bet yeah. against him on Thanksgiving, and it's like, I hate betting against Derek Carr. Yeah, right. Well, Flacco was the PI king. Yes, just that was it really as high and long as you can. His entire offense and the Raiders were kind of like, yeah, fuck it. Well, you know, eight times a game, just throw throw it downfield. Mm -hmm. I don't know why teams don't do that more often. All right, so we have the Seahawks Niners would be the other piece of that. The Niners are seventh in DVOA now, and they have a lot of buzz. A lot of buzz. They also easily could have... I watched every play of that Minnesota game. They easily could have lost that game. I know. They were dying to give that game back to I Minnesota. Know. And as you pointed out, they lost their two best players last week. Warner and Samuel. And well, Samuel, if, if they gave out most valuable player for receiver, I think he would have been the most valuable receiver this year, right? Him or Cup? He's the first... NFL wide receiver to have five rushing touchdowns in a season. He's also only the third player in NFL history, Roger Craig and Marshall Falk being the others. And this is by only in week 12. These guys did it over season. Thousand receiving yards, five rushing touchdowns, five receiving touchdowns. He is everything to them. He sets up the Eli Mitchell. He sets up the George Kittle. So I don't know how that offense is going to function without him. More importantly, Seattle 16 and four in their last 20 against uh San Francisco. They just, well, they do this handle This is the them. team that Wilson owns. Because initially I was thinking like, oh, Niners. 
Seahawks are dead. Put pour some dirt on them. They're three and eight. Also, nine and eight could easily make the playoffs. Eight and nine might make the playoffs. I was texting with Danny Kelly and Mina about it because the Seahawks fans are just in all time. They have to be. There's just no like, future. Like, oh my god. That. Look at the things they got. Okay, the Jamal Adams pick is one thing that's going to end up being the fifth pick overall. But also. Pete is 70 years old and under contract till 2025 and Schneider right. is under contract till 2027. So it's not like there's like, you can't do mass changes right now. Danny tweeted the other day about how he went through their last seven years of drafts and free agent signings. And it was just dark. That was his word. Like, and it was every just year like it's like really, really rough. Really since the Malcolm Butler Super Bowl. Yeah. And it's supposed to be like Jordan Brooks. This is the year. And he's a first round pick. And it's like, these guys that for years we've been hearing about, like, this is the year that this guy, this Daryl Taylor is going to be, it just hasn't clicked, hasn't happened. And yet, Russell Also Wilson, doesn't seem like the chemistry is amazing on no, that team. But I would say, Chemistry yeah, is a little shaky. Wilson, Lockett, Metcalf, like, is there a better trio still at wide receiver and quarterback? Like, can't they still win games? <laughs> yeah, I'd hope so. Yeah, plus 144 against a team that is basically a 500 team missing its two best players that we have no idea if they can play from behind at all. Right. They're down yeah. seven. So, yeah. All right. We, we'll hesitantly do the uh, the Niners with Washington. Steelers plus 140 no. against the Ravens. Where no. The Steelers are permanent stay away for us no. now, right? Can't. Not after last week. That Bengals thing. I was like, yeah, no. I can't in good faith after two weeks in a row betting on that team that lost the way they've lost. All right, Kyle. Here we go. Turn the camera. Million dollar picks. Week 13, Peter Schrager and I are down 800. Oh, I'm sorry. Let me do it again. All right, Kyle, turn the camera. Million dollar picks, week 13. The comeback starts here. We lost $776,000 last week. And we learned a valuable lesson. Don't make picks on a Tuesday. Don't make picks literally right after the last week had, had ended. I have a lot of regrets, not knowing if CeeDee Lamb wasn't going to play all that stuff. This is the week of the tease. We're going to do a $300,000 tease. Minnesota down to one against the terrible winless Detroit Lions. Okay. Dallas to a pick em on Thursday night against the Saints. We're sneaking that in under the wire. Get to root against Taysom Hill tonight, Shrakes. 300K on that. 300K. On a Minnesota Dallas Patriots three team, three team tees plus one forty. Actually, okay. we're going to put two hundred fifty k in that, not three hundred. So that one we're wait. We got to do a Thursday night, and then we got to wait all the way to Monday night. That's we're really earning that one. So, Thursday, Sunday, Monday. <laughs> it's it's, it's a go. three tier tees two hundred fifty k plus one forty odds. Minnesota down to one. Dallas to pick them. The Patriots up to eight and a half. We think that's a one score game, right? Yeah. What's the scenario for you where it's not a one-score game? Josh Allen does what he did his last week against New Orleans, and it's just awesome. It's like, here, I'm just going to dominate you, and that could happen. Hey, Josh, let me introduce you to number nine, Matt Judon. Matthew Judon. Guess who's going to be wearing a jersey that night of Matt Judon? Nephew Kyle. His got birthday one? present arrived from Fanatics. Yeah. Red yeah. sleeves? Red sleeves underneath? Not only are we watching that game together, I actually have, a, have to get, I get to have a couple drinks. Little yeah, Monday night, no, little Monday night, no podcast right after. Let's go. Finally, uh, another 300K, nine point tees. Nine point tees on FanDuel, minus 115. Chiefs down to minus 0 
against Denver. All they have to do is win. Just win Just by a point. Win. One point, yeah. Matt Mahom- Pat Mahomes. The Bucks down to minus two against the Falcons, who are 32nd in DVOA. The Bucks are first. If we lose the tees because number one in DVOA loses to number 32 in DVOA, we'll, we'll live with fine. that. I'll send, I'll send you the check. And then we're beefing up the Pats to plus 11 and a half. Love it. This is where Warren Sharp goes. You now have six teams where you need the results to go your way to win all these bets. Yeah, I hear you, Warren Sharp. All right, then finally, two more uh, straight up bets. Bengals minus three Chargers. Yes. Fun Bengals. We're in. It's not, it's, they already had their, their Jets moment. Doesn't happen 60, again. 60% kind of in on the Bengals, 40%. I don't think the Chargers, I'm sorry, I don't feel okay. like you're that good, especially 10 a.m. Sunday, uh, su- Sunday, West Coast, East Coast. Did you see the Chargers linemen all dancing with Mixon? Like, that's what, I, that's what I'm envisioning. Mm. Chiefs, Dolphins, we could parlay these as a money line together to minus 116. Do we go separate? Dolphins playing the Giants. We could go Dolphins minus four and a half straight up and hope they beat Mike. Is it definitely Mike Lennon? No. Jones is practicing. We don't know yet. That's why these Thursdays are tough. We're going to put 200 on Chiefs Dolphins. Both teams have to win. Minus 116. And then finally, the underdog parlay of the week, which we get to boost for ourselves because FanDuel is going to boost it as well. Washington plus 120 against the Raiders. Seahawks plus 144 against the Niners. We're boosting that too. Plus 550. Washington and Seattle both have to win. Peter Schrager, I have a question for you. Are our feelings going to be hurt on Monday night or not? After all of these bets come in. This This is is now a Thursday, Sunday, Monday roller coaster ride for us. Who's hurting our feelings? Who are you worried about? Our Sundays are grueling, you and me, because we text all day and it's it's not gone well. but, But at least by Monday, we wake up with a fresh perspective. To have to suffer through Thursday, Sunday, and I can't, ex- I can't even imagine it. Yes, I feel like Tony Soprano in the Chasing It episode, but I also feel like this could end up okay, and this could be our week. And Bill, we could be out of this hole, and suddenly we're we're riding high. I like it. I don't think we're it's gonna be teaser week. It's Let's teaser go. and parlay week here. A million dollar picks week thirteen. Peter Schrager, we can see you on Good Morning Football and on uh, Fox this Sunday. Good to see you as always. Great to see you, Bill. All right, Chuck Klosterman is here. He's been on this podcast many times over the last 15 years. This is one of the most important ones we've done. You think so? I what do. Was, what was the previous top? The the Malaysian aircraft, the death of Eddie Van Halen, or the original one about the failure of the Olympic team in 2000 and... Would it have been four? Oh, 2000... Two, no, get, the near failure in t- 2008... I thought the most important one we did was the JFK assassination with Chris Connolly. Hmm. Well, I guess historians will have to decide. You know, maybe somebody will like Peter Jackson will go back and get all <laughs> and take all our podcasts and then yeah. get all the the stuff that is being you know that that happens before and after and sort of have a new portrait of hmm. what our relationship actually is. That'll be very <laughs> you know revealing. Well, that's why this Beatles thing. It's eight hours. I was excited for it just because I knew how much time Peter Jackson spent on it. And I, I think he's talented. Um, I wasn't prepared for it to completely reinvent not only what I thought of the Beatles, but what I thought of the last two years of what happened with them and some of the myths and half-truths that were out there. I don't think this is a documentary as much as like a historical document. It felt it felt like really important. This is the most important band we've ever had. Whether people could say it's the greatest, whatever, it's up to the person. It's the most important. 
And this is this, all of this footage that answered all of these questions, at least for me. I, and you care about this stuff even more than I do. What was your reaction watching it? Well, no, you know, I, I was waiting for this since I heard about it. Then on Thanksgiving, like my family wanted to watch more sort of traditional Thanksgiving films, so I couldn't watch it that day. And Friday, it was the Zags and Duke, so I couldn't watch it then. And then all day Saturday, of course, there was a lot going on. I'd like to actually ask you about Georgia and Alabama at some point. Yeah. But finally, I started watching it on uh, Saturday night. And um, I mean, what you're saying is, is, is completely true. I mean, there are things that people have asked and speculated and wondered about the Beatles for 50 years. I feel like I've spent over half my life having discussions over things that have now just been directly answered. Like, I, I, I kind of can't believe it. I mean, I don't, there's, well, there's no, I can't think of any comparison for this, where there's something that's unknown and a, a subjective thing. You know, it's not like necessarily an objective thing, like, you know, we, we find a fact from the past and it proves somebody was somewhere or somebody wasn't somewhere. But these are more subjective things. The relationship between these four guys, the role Yoko played during this period of the band, um, the way they perceived themselves the degree to which uh, Paul sort of took over the band, like all of these things now are, are, are just are just answered. It's, it's a it's a very kind of mind blowing thing. And, you know, people have I've had a bunch of conversations with people about the length of this. Right. There's many people saying it's too long. You were one. You told me you thought it was too long, you know, and then there's this, an hour you know, too long. And then there's a pushback from some other people who are like, oh, no, I wish it was longer. I, I wish it kept going. I would say. It's the correct length. Mm. Like, because what, what we, like, <laughs> there are so many things, like, from the movie Let It Be. Like the, like, the situation where George is talking to Paul and saying, you know, I'll play any way you want. I won't play at all. I just want to sort of, you know, please you or whatever. In Let It Be, that seems like a, a extremely adversarial confrontation. But now with sort of all the stuff around it, it's not that way. It's it's a it's a it's a combination of George's annoyance, but also his his he's not being totally ironic when he says like I just want to do this for you to be happy because I mean you watch this thing and you you really realize how much more McCartney is invested than the other three guys, and that you know John still thinks it's important they do this. George is unsure why they're doing this. And then Ringo is just, he, he almost is like, well, I, I'm just part of this group and, and I'll do whatever they want. And, and my feelings are almost irrelevant. It's, it's very interesting seeing their relationships to the camera. Paul is obviously the most aware of the camera at all times. John acts more like, kind of like Jim from The Office. I was going to say Holden, him, Holden Caulfield. Well, he just likes occasionally to look into the camera so to just to, to kind of tell people, it's like, I know we're being filmed here and I know this is I, I, I like, you know, I, I want you to be aware of this. I'm sort of um, unsure what my purpose with this band is in a, in a larger. It was like and then George does not want him to be doing it at all. Uh, he would he doesn't see the sense in doing this. He just wants to 
essentially make his solo record. And Ringo was aware of the camera, and yet does not change his personality. Like, I think that in some ways is a, a remarkable thing. But I mean, these guys have been watched constantly for six years. So the idea of being watched is not like the first season of the real world or something where these people are figuring out how this feels. I mean, they almost go into it with the idea that we're being watched at all times. And even it's, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I just, I think that, that the amount of footage the guy got that Jackson got is the right amount, because if there is less, it's the same problem that was with let it be. And if it's more, I do think that there is, you know, there, there, there was some, you know, kind of moments where it's like, even as a someone fascinated by this, your mind can wander away. But what would you cut down? I mean, if anything, you'd probably want to cut down some of the musical interludes, which technically is the most important part. So I, it, it's, I mean, I feel like this is the length it should be that this is that he got this right. He did a great job. It looks amazing particularly the first half of the movie before they go to Abbey Road, where they had those kind of multicolored backgrounds. Um, so it's very dreamlike. And in some ways, for weirdos, like, I guess me, there were dreamlike elements of this. Like George talking about how he feels about his role in the band in that way to those guys. I, ne just, I, I never thought I would ever see that. You know? I thought it was one of the best pieces of content I've ever consumed in my life. And when I say it was too long, like, yeah, you could have cut a half hour, 45 minutes to an hour. I'm sure. It doesn't ultimately really matter. There, this is so rich. There's so many things going on. And it's so out of control that this exists. That was what I had the same reaction to you as I'm watching. I'm just like, I just can't believe this. I can't believe this exists. When he starts messing around and trying to figure out, let it be. And there's like three conversations going around. And he's like, oh, I, I do, I, do I have this? And, and he's just playing the piano. They're cutting to Ringo and he's talking to somebody. And it's like, oh, over there is um, one of like the seven, eight, nine geniuses we've ever had in our lives is creating one of his best songs as all of this like cacophony is happening. This documentary has like 20 moments like that where you're just like, I just can't believe this exists. How did this take so long? Where what? was this? And, you know, and like, like things change, right? So it's like a lot of people have commented on the scene where like Paul is playing guitar and he's kind of singing gibberish. And then about 45 seconds into it, he basically creates the song Get Back for the first time. And many yep. people have been, this is amazing, you know? Um, you know, and, and it is. And I think a lot of people would be like, well, why wasn't that in the original movie? But the thing is, in the present, you sometimes can't tell what is important like while it's happening i mean they they don't have any realization that i mean i wouldn't say you know i mean let it be in general i would is one of my least favorite beatles records i mean it's a great album compared to other musicians but compared to the beatles yeah and they're and they're within the bottom third but what i'm saying is like when he's i was thinking you know, i just I got this book coming out next year on the nineties and I, and, and, and this happened to me sometimes when I was going back and like, I would research something from the nineties and I would find a small detail and I would think to myself like, well, that seems important now. It obviously couldn't have seemed important then. You can see its placement in the story or whatever, the way it's, you know, yeah. um, that, that, you know, time has to move on for you to understand that something is meaningful. So that probably seemed just sort of like, kind of regular musical work when they were making the original movie. But now it seems amazing that 
that they have that. But, you know? but that's why he constructed this this way. Because he shows just a lot of footage of them fucking around, messing around, playing old songs they've done, playing songs that would never make an album. Just kind of, I don't know, enjoying each other's company and trying to keep that flame kindled. But then as you're watching it, and then all of a sudden there's this real moment of brilliance. And it's like, wait a second, is he... Is he trying to figure out, let it be? It's like, wait a second. Is he trying to figure out, get back? And then well, you realize, and that's what I, to me, that's why it has to be the length it is. Maybe a little too long, but you, you know what I mean? Well, you know, it, I think when this thing was being promoted, the idea was this is going to sort of reverse the ideas that we had from let it be, which was like, you know, always sort of used as this example of a movie about a band breaking up and you see this happen. And this is going to kind of reverse that. And that is true. That does happen in a lot of ways. The, 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 the interaction between them is different, I guess, slightly different than what I imagined. Um, but it's much more than just reversing it. Like I, I, I don't think that uh, people expected that this would be like such an intimate view of, of their interaction. I mean, you know, like when John and Paul are talking about George temporarily quitting. In the flower pot scene. Yes. And I mean, you, you, you find something that I think some people probably didn't like, which is that Paul doesn't seem to respect him as a musician much at all and basically sees him as somebody that he can teach or, you know, uh, and well, he was, sort of he was younger, yeah. which was, I think, he was. part of it. And he that, was like and, four and years he, younger than John. And they're, you know, they're all so, I mean, like the Beatles broke up before Harrison turned 30, which is another just bizarre fact always that that whole thing happened before he, before like the age I was when I moved to New York or whatever. I can't believe that. Um, but like also, and John has more of sort of a, of, of a, of a personal relationship to George, but also does not see him as irreplaceable. I mean, they definitely see themselves as that we're we, like, we're two and they're two. And George wants it to, to be so that they're three. And they're pretty dismissive of his material. Uh, a lot of which ends up on all things must pass and is great and all of these things. Although, it, you know, it, it's, it's like when he, <laughs> I, I, it's just interesting to see how they react to his material, which I think that they view as kind of simple in a way. Or like, you know, when in, in the third episode, when they're having an argument, John and Paul are having kind of a very cordial argument over like what the idea of this whole project is supposed to be. And like Paul says, we have all these, you know, we build all these obstacles in. Like George says, no movies. We don't want to do movies anymore. And now it kind of reflects badly on Paul because it's sort of like, so wh wh why were you concerned with making film? Why were, you, why were you not more interested in this idea of the Beatles just being a musical act? Um, but that th his vision was bigger. Like he was sort of like, like films are an essential thing. And you, you get the sense that, that John agrees with him begrudgingly. And uh, you know, obviously he's sort of getting a push from Yoko because I don't think John would have done anything during this period without Yoko's sort of stamp of approval. So, um, I mean, well, but these are things like, like to talk about, it's not, you're right. It's not really like a music documentary. Like it's not, it's not really for, it's entertaining, but it's not really for casual entertainment. Yeah. Well, the stuff with John and as the years pass, and I think the 1970 to 1980, 
almost frame the Beatles' opinions or our opinions about them as much as anything else. And you go read that Playboy interview he did, which I think he did before he died, but it ran after he died. And he's got so much disdain for McCartney in it. And one of the things was like, he, you know, I don't need to constantly prove myself the way he does is basically his thought. And you could even feel that in these sessions where McCartney, you're right, like Lennon's begrudgingly like, yeah, you're right, we should do this. McCartney's the one who's like pushing, pushing, pushing. But going back, going back to George, I thought that was so fascinating. And it was like the flower pot. And then there's a couple, like when Lennon's like, well, we could just get Clapton to play yes. the guitar. Like they did think he was replaceable. And the, the reality is these guys were two of like the all-time geniuses we've ever had. And Harrison was really good, but he wasn't on their level. And he wanted to get more respect from them. And I think you can kind of see in Paul's face sometimes, he's kind of like, who the fuck is this guy? <laughs> like, doesn't he realize like he's with me and John? We're like two of the all-time greats. What, who wants to hear from you? You're not on our, you're not on our level. You see, well, but I, I mean, I guess in a way that's true. But what I mean more is that sort of, that the, the, they see him as like a, a He's Chris like Bosch. Like, like, well, like, well, maybe that's he possible. Like, so Chris, just, set some they, picks and space they, the floor. The, you know, like we've all sort of, okay. Like you said, that Playboy interview, there was also an interview that, that Lane had done with Jan Wenner earlier, where he goes through the entire catalog of the Beatles. Yeah. And is like, I wrote that song. Paul wrote that. Obviously Paul wrote that, you know? So I came into this kind of with the belief that essentially starting from the white album, they were writing completely separately that, that they didn't really have a, a, a relationship. But while that is true to a degree, it was still more collaborative, I guess, than I thought it was like, like they do see, you know, they, they really kind of trust each other's opinion on these things and help each other out. And um, I mean that all those dynamics was just kind of, I mean, sort of charming. I mean, like, I, I mean, there's just, I don't know. There's so many things. About, Wait, I'm going to, yeah. we got to take that further. Okay. That was my favorite part of the doc. I thought what would emerge from this over eight hours. And it's so weird that it went so sideways. And there's a lot of reasons for it that we can get into. But over and over again, you just get the sense, Leonard McCartney, they fucking loved each other. They loved playing music together. And they really were connected. And it, that two of us scene, which is edited really brilliantly when, it's just they're locked in on each other and Harrison's kind of over there on the side getting more and more bummed out because he's like an appendage to them, right? And they're just vibing off each other in a way. It's almost like watching a romance, you know, these guys. And that's what I wasn't prepared for because I thought the last two years, I thought it was way more contentious, but I think they love playing music together. I really do, even to the end. Well, you know, what what you're saying is, I, I, I've seen this written about, that there is this this kind of desire now to, to view this like, um, you know, when, when they're talking about two of us or whatever, it's like, oh, it almost seems like they're like, the, you know, John makes the joke about them being lovers. I have a slightly different reading on some of this. Okay. I'm actually kind of doing actually what you do with the NBA guys once in a while. I might be reading too much into the body language, particularly since, you know, John was certainly smoking weed during this movie. I think on heroin during a lot of this movie. And there's just, you know, there's different kind of personalities. There's like people who smoke pot and talk more and people who smoke pot and talk less. And Paul talks more and John talks less. But what I often see or what I seem to project maybe into Lennon's face is not that I love this guy. It was actually... 
I don't like this person. I guess I love them in the way a brother might love his brother who they don't get along. I'm sick of hearing this. I just, I know that this guy is a genius. I know we have this incredible relationship and our music differentiates us from all other musicians. But I don't know, like, he seems to kind of love George and he seems to kind of love Ringo uh, in, 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 in that way. But I don't, I did not see, like, their relationship to me seemed like, hard like that's like so it was, funny i completely yeah, disagree yeah. i saw it totally differently but maybe maybe well, that's uh, why, why this is such a great film well or or i guess in some ways it could counter contradict my initial uh, you know statement that's like now all these questions are answered maybe these questions aren't answered maybe that makes more questions in some way um but i just i don't like a lot of times there are shots of all three people looking at paul and they have that look on their face and i bet many people out here who, you know, who are listening to this, who have jobs where you, that you, you deal with other people and that this experience, somebody who asks you a question, listens to you answer it and actually just wants to talk about what they think of it. Yeah. They just want it. They just want to talk about it. And, but they feel like if they just talk about it, it would somehow be strange. So they have to like almost kind of make frame it as a conversation. And you can see these guys are going like, you're not really listening to, to me. You don't, you just want to go through this and you want to run through all these options. I thought it was very interesting. Also, I think it's in the third episode where at one point, John Lennon has had dinner with Alan Klein. Oh my who, God. Um, who was like the Stones manager and briefly the, the Beatles manager. And he comes back from this thing and he is just like, this guy's a genius. He understands me better than you do, George, which in some ways does kind of show that John and which has always sort of been a perception of him, kind of a naive realist. Like he's yeah. a realist, but he's naive that he believes the information he has is all the information there is to have. But he's talking to Glenn Johns, who's, you know, the, the engineer here, about Alan Klein. It's and, so good. Yes. And and John Lennon is saying, like, this guy is just, he's brilliant. You know, I just, he's so creative. And Glenn Johns is like, well, you know, he probably talks to you differently because you're you. But yeah. every time I talk to him, he asked me a question and if he doesn't like my answer, he changes the subject immediately. And I don't like that. And I was like, boy, that's like a, that's like, these are the kind of things where it's like, I feel like I learned a lot about Alan Klein in 45 well, seconds. Wait, go I, even yeah, go yeah, earlier than yeah, that where yeah, he's like, yeah. John Lennon's like, he's great. And Glenn Johns is going, it's kind of weird though. Right. Mm. And John Lennon's like, yeah, blah, blah, blah. And, and then Glenn Johns is again, it's like, I thought he was pretty weird. But then he realizes John really likes him. So he kind of circles back and tries to compliment him and then does what you just said. But it's laying the groundwork where Glenn Johns is basically like, do I tell this guy that to run from Alan Klein? And you can tell that he doesn't want to. Alan Klein is the guy who, you know, I think should get the most credit for breaking these guys up if you're going to do the blame pie. Well, I, that's, you know, I mean, here is, okay, I guess this is the thing that a lot of people are probably watching this for. Uh, or maybe even listening to this podcast for it's like okay, so what made the Beatles break up? Now, Wait, hold on. Can we yeah. take a break before you answer this? Sure. All right, we're taking a break. All right, coming back. You mentioned a lot of people are watching this doc, thinking, "All right, is this going to answer the question for me? Why did the Beatles break up? What is your answer to that?" Well, okay. So, so it has become like verboten over the last really. 15, but 25 years to still blame Yoko. 
you know, that is seen as being sexist and racist and people just will lose their mind to even if you make jokes about like calling someone a Yoko or whatever, you know, the thing is what this, what this series shows to me is that Yoko's role in the breakup in the Beatles was kind of like, I guess, epiphenomenal sort of, it's like, she's part of it, but not because of who she is or anything she does. It's because John Lennon decided I'm with this person and they're going to be with me everywhere I go. And we're actually one person now. And yeah. if there's, you're talking to me, you're talking to her, like, it, like it could have been Harry Nielsen. If he would have brought Harry Nielsen into the studio with him and he was just like, you're sitting there, he, he, he's going to sit here and knit and just always be here. I mean, Paul talks about this pretty straightforwardly. He's like, he doesn't seem to have negative views about Yoko, but he's like, well, I guess this is how it is now. John's a real intense, emotional person. They're always going to be together. And if he's got to choose between the Beatles and Yoko, he's definitely going to choose Yoko. Now, somebody could watch this and say, well, Paul brings Linda McCartney into the studio. He brings his daughter and all that. That's true. But you always get the sense that like, she could leave at any time. It's like she's just kind of passing through. There's people watching yeah. them rehearse, and then yeah. Yoko's actually sitting next to John Lennon as well, they rehearse, like, which like, is the big difference. If McCartney had to choose between Linda and the Beatles, he would also choose Linda. But what he's basically saying is it would never come to that. I, I'm not the kind of person who would ever be in a situation where I got to make this decision. Whereas John is like, it's not even a decision. We're together now. If you want to be with, talk to me, you're talking to her. She's we're, here. We're one you person. Know? It's even yeah. beyond we're together now. We're, so, we don't end. Yeah. We're, so, we're like so, combined. So his just perception of the world is changing, you know? And, and like, you know, he's the, he'll mention the Beatles kind of a lot in a joking way throughout this, you know? Like, I, I, he's almost sort of taken on the perception that like a lot of grunge musicians in the 90s took on where it was mm. like, it's stupid that this happened to us. Like, it's dumb we're this popular. Right. It's dumb we're this rich. I'm a little embarrassed by it. It seems antithetical to the reason I got into music. And I, I just, I, I'm not comfortable with this, you know? Um, and I, Well, that's, that's and every as, interview that he gave in the last 10 years of hmm. his life where it, it almost seems like, it's like when, if, some, if you had a friend who got married when they were 19, and then when they were 28, they got divorced. You're like, what happened? And they would say, I mean, I married her when I was 19. People change. I'm a totally different person now. It's kind of the way Lennon talks about the Beatles. It's like, yeah, I knew these guys and I grew up with them and we made all this music, but now I'm doing this. Like, it's done. It's not coming back. He's pretty adamant about it. Well, because, yeah, okay, so like Harrison, I think even more so about that because he joined the band when he was so young that right. his entire adult life had been the Beatles. So he's almost a little bit like, you know, like when, when there was all the Barry Bonds coverage and like Barry Bonds did not seem to think it was a big deal that he's a major league baseball player because yeah. his father had been and his I was uncle or godfather was Billy Mays. Or it's like he, he to him, the idea of being a major league baseball player is, is, was not a remarkable thing. George is the same situation that he 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 did never perceived being in the Beatles as really anything more than a, really an obstruction in a lot of ways. I can't go well, wherever I want. I can't right. do whatever I want. I can't even make all the songs I want. Right. I know I'm because, getting yeah. better at music yeah. and I want to, yes. I want to yeah. explore things that I can't cause I'm stuck in this band. And then um, there's, a, there, there's like a brief discussion in this thing where like, he talks about the idea of like, well, maybe I'll make a record and then we'll still keep the Beatles thing together or whatever. 
It would have been interesting if that would have happened. If that that all the Beatles, you know, had been like Kiss in '78, if they'd all made solo records and kept going. Um, that that I, I don't. I wonder what the result would have been of that. You know. Well, continuing that point, so Lennon clearly is outgrowing the band. It just wants to be with Yoko, and is kind of tired of the whole Beatles thing. Harrison is feeling like I'm always going to be the little brother on this band. I'm never going to be taken seriously. I'm going to have to do my own thing at some point. McCartney, and you really feel it for all eight hours, he's looking at this this three-week session as like, we have to save this. This is, the, <laughs> we're the most important band that's ever lived. We have a responsibility. We can still make great music. Like, And he's constantly, he has by far the most energy, charisma, everything in this because he's constantly trying to lift these guys up. It's a, like to borrow the basketball analogy again. It's like watching the great player on the team that might not, a little like last dance. Like we might not be back next season. <laughs> Let's go all in. We got one more title on us. And that's the vibe he has. And it's probably the best kind of songwriting uh, musical stretch of his career. If you're saying in three weeks, all the songs they came up with out of this. That's interesting. I guess, you know, because when you look at McCartney one and McCartney two, I mean, like maybe I'm amazed and some of that material is on there too. If you're looking, if you put that in the same but window he spent, of time. But a year, yeah. or a year and a half making those albums. This is, they're doing this in what, 14 yeah. days. Well, that's, that's the other weird thing. It's like the Beatles are on deadline. Like, yeah. What, like, they, like what, what they're not going to get, what, what's going to happen? Because Ringo, so like, because like, Ringo you know, needs yeah. the stage. Ringo yeah, needs the stage on January 24th. But like, so they're just like, they're always like, they're putting themselves under the gun on purpose. It is interesting how this is what successful people always seem to do, which is that upon reaching their level of success, they still sort of need to build in these things that are obligatory is, I guess maybe if you take your foot off the gas, everything changes. I, um, well, he has because, a quote. Yeah. He says in here, I wrote this down. The best bit of us always has been and will be when our backs are to the mm -hmm. wall. Now, all right, why is that? It's because I think for them, it probably sucked to be in the Beatles in a lot of ways by like 1967, right? They were too famous. They couldn't go anywhere. They couldn't even do live shows anymore. It was, they were the most studied people in the world other than maybe Elvis. So that part, I think they were retreating from. You also had Lennon who had a bunch of issues. We you mentioned the drug stuff with him. He's definitely seems like he's a little, he's a little all over the map. And we know after this, like he both him and Yoko both had heroin stuff after. Who knows if it was starting during this? Um, but I think that's why McCartney probably sensed like if we don't get this shit done in the next three weeks, I might never see John again. <laughs> John might be gone. Yeah. I mean, there's. You know, it is especially the very like the, in the first episode, like there are situations where John does just seem totally gacked. He just does not seem like he's engaged with kind of what's going on. The thing you said about Paul having the most charisma, that is an interesting deal, because if you said which was the most charismatic Beatle, everybody would say McCartney or whatever. But like the line you quoted where like he goes like we're at our best when our back is against the wall. It's a cliched line. Well, it's not even so much of a cliche thing. It seems the kind of thing you say because you're aware this is a film. Like, like some of Paul's charisma is forced in a way that the other guys refuse to do. I mean, yeah, uh, Ringo and George the most. John does some stuff like where he's like, "Oh, 
when they're running through songs, he feels this obligation to use a funny voice sometimes. And he, and he, he's a performative person, but it does not seem as though he is performing for the, for this film. It almost seems like I'm doing this to make it harder for you to make a normal film. Well, he, start, Paul, he starts yeah. mocking McCartney yeah. as McCartney singing. He's like yes. nobbing the words, yeah. all that stuff. Uh, whereas Paul sometimes is sort of like, okay, I need to say the things that we say in this. I mean, it's, you know, he's, McCartney has always been the most fascinating Beatle. Certainly this series has only amplified that. I mean, it's like, you know, you, there, there are so many things about him that uh, are contradictory and you can't tell if, you know, um, his, his, he's, sometimes he has a, a kind of a, a kind of a boyish earnesty that will seem somewhat false when you put it up against other things he says, you know, a short time later. Um, so it's just, I, I, it's, it's an, it's an interesting deal. You know, I, I was thinking this morning, um, you know, there's in, in the seventies, then John has this song called, how do you sleep? Are you aware of this? Yeah, song? Uh, okay. I'm yes, aware okay. of all this stuff. Yes. Okay. So, so that's, this a, song, that's yes. like the first hit this track basically. It, well, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a mean song. And like, it's kind of on the level of like idiot wind in terms of meanness. In some ways it's even meaner because everybody knows who he's talking about. But it's hard to sort of see how John has those feelings in 1969. He doesn't seem to have that kind of animosity toward him. So then the thing is, is like the thing that really drove these guys crazy besides you know, Alan Klein's involvement and how that kind of split them into a group of three and a group of one. But, you know, I think now Paul really regrets. I think if he had, if, if, if you asked him and he was totally honest, like what is the regret of his professional life? It would be putting out that press release claiming that he was leaving the Beatles. Mm. Because, you know, basically, I think at the time, and you, I can totally understand this, Paul thought, well, it'll look better if I'm leaving on my own. When in truth, it was like John and George were the people who didn't really want this to keep going as it was. But so Paul puts this press release out and everybody reads it. And for the rest of time, then he has to sort of deal with this fact. It's like, oh, maybe if I direct this, you know, back toward somebody else or Yoko or say it's complicated or whatever. Um, but I wonder if what John hates is the fact that he knows that Paul did that for personal reasons that 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 Paul pretended that he wanted to leave the Beatles to further launch his solo career. And that was really kind of the breaking point because, you know, it's like like not only does John sing that song, it's like I'm pretty sure George plays guitar on that song. And I don't know if Ringo plays drums on it, but Ringo plays drums on some of Lennon's like solo stuff. So it's like they all had this feeling. They all had this feeling that it was them and Paul once the band ended. Yeah. Well, they also, there was, I mean, the money stuff is uh, to me way more important than Yoko, not just like Epstein dies in 67. They don't have the manager. Klein comes in. Lennon's really pushing for Klein. McCartney's suspicious of him for a bunch of reasons. So that starts it. But then there was that other piece where the publishing, the, what, the, the thing that Lennon and McCartney have, where it was like, you could buy shares in it and stuff. And Lennon found out McCartney had bought more shares in it and they had agreed that they would have the same shares, but suddenly McCartney had more. So it, it seemed like the money and the amount of money that was at stake 
was messing it up at least a little bit. But honestly, I think there were a lot of drugs involved too. Like what do drugs do sometimes? They make people paranoid, suspicious. They make them erratic. And this is a really weird time in general. It's, there's upheaval everywhere. Um, the format of music is just changing and being innovated rapidly. Like, can you think of music? Is there any been any four-year period ever in music where music changed more from like 1967 to 1971? They have all these people that are coming for their corner. And it doesn't, I don't know. It just seems like if the band isn't tight, which it clearly, as much as the love that we saw in this documentary, if those guys aren't tight, then they're going to have the same outcome that we've seen all these other bands have over the last 50 years, you know? So it makes sense to me that they broke up, I guess is my point. I suppose the only period where music changed more would have actually been kind of like from early 90s, Meet the Beatles to Sgt. Pepper. Mm. Because from that, I mean, like where the Beatles begin at, it is sort of almost a a 50-ish style of music. And by the time Sgt. Pepper comes out, it is now... Singles are now less important than albums. The idea of albums having concepts and ideas and and being cohesive, the use of instrumentation that goes outside of basically bass, drum, guitar, piano. Um, I mean, they like the song structures of Beatles songs take like such a leap on Hard Day's Night. I mean, just yeah. from, it just it's it's you know, and then and then they they there's all of these levels where they just sort of make these big jumps. Um, well, but, it's like what Harrison know, uh, says about playing the guitar, where he's like, there's stuff I can't play. Hmm. They're playing stuff and I'm trying, my fingers can't, can't quite get it. You know, because he knows like whatever's happening in rock music, it's now moving at a pace that they're not at and he's got to catch up with it. Can he catch up playing in this band? I thought that, I was really interested by that. Well, he, when he talks about Clapton, you know, very, you know, glowingly. It is an interesting deal. His insecurity to me is one of the many charming things about Harrison's personality. That yeah. it's just, you know, there is he he is uh uh there was you know so many interesting things about him, about like how he, you know, his his hatred of taxes, just it's just it, it's just an obsession, <laughs> his obsession with hatred of taxes, you know. But like he also and toothpaste. Looks, yes, <laughs> he looks <laughs> he he looks at Eric Clapton as somebody who uh you know it, he he was like, you know, he can play the song and then start soloing, and then it just takes off and it all makes sense. And he's kind of saying, Well, it doesn't that's not how I am. Like yeah. I, I put these chords together and it's you know, the song is 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 not improvisational or it's like like uh, i i play the song the way i i sort of wrote it or whatever you know uh, as opposed to having the song just kind of become something else uh i i don't know i i, I mean if you're eric clapton sitting at home watching this i mean you probably really like that scene that probably made you feel real good that like the, these guys who are more talented than anyone are like oh wow it'd be great if we were like eric clapton but yeah. well and then you had the clapton harrison history which made that even even more fascinating um the creative process in this which very rarely gets captured correctly in a music doc you know and i, I think that was the Eagles doc, which I love the, there's that one scene about Glenn Fry lives underneath Jackson Brown and Jackson Brown mm-hmm. is trying to figure out one of his songs. And he just put, keeps playing the same 45 seconds over and over and over again. And Glenn Fry's like, God, he's going to fucking play this again. And there's a T and it, it's just really well done. And, and then he realizes like, Oh, that's how you make a song. 
it's a repetition of it. It's just, you keep having to innovate, try stuff, mess around with it, and it eventually takes shape. I've never seen it done better than it's done in this documentary. I mean, how many times did they play um, Don't Let Me Down over the course of eight hours? What is it like 50 times? How many times did they well, I mean, mess around with Get Back? And how many times did it change? The lyrics are changing. Like, they're playing off each other. Like, what do you think of this? What if I do this? And I I just, I was so mesmerized. I I, I almost couldn't speak. Well, I mean, that's, that's why the eight hours is the right length. Because yeah. in order to include all that stuff, I mean, because if, if you were cutting this down, any editor would say, some of the things that were, are repetitive, you know, it would, and, and as a consequence, it would... It would all seem like when Paul comes up with Get Back, like it would all seem like it suddenly happened. Yeah. But by stretching it out like this, it shows you how slow the process actually is, but also illustrates the occasional moments where it just suddenly happens. Yeah, I you think know? that's why yeah. you're right with the link. Yeah. I still felt like, you know, could we have done 30 times of Don't Let Me Down instead of 50? Like there's stuff like that. Like if you're really like, what's the perfect link? But on the other hand, Jackson spent four years working on this. Like he obviously considered every single possibility and this is where he landed. Well, also, isn't there a certain amount of time where once you reach that time, what is the purpose in trying to shave anything off? <laughs> Richard. Like, I mean, once I yeah. think that I think very often it's four hours that it, like yeah. if you if you put something together and it's four hours long. Uh, you can justify that this is like it's this is long, but we we need these four hours. But if you go to five hours, then why are you trying to get it down to four? Like it's it's all if you, once you ask people to invest more time than three hours, you're really saying this is for people who care about this outside of the content. I mean, that's, yeah. that's the big thing. Anybody who's like any complaints, you know, I've now, of course, you know, I, I know it's always annoying to complain about the reactions to things, but it's like, so the thing comes out on Thursday and then you have a day of all these kind of Beatle experts or people who view themselves as Beatle experts sort of talking about um, like just how amazing this is and all these things that they love. And then of course, the way the world is now, there's all these people who kind of feel as though, well, whatever the conversation is, I had to I'm take part. Yeah, I got a zag. So, yeah. I'm zagging. No, no, well, it's not even they're zagging. It's sometimes they're just saying nothing. It's just like everyone's talking about the Beatles on Friday, so I'm going to talk about the Beatles on Saturday, just because that's what everyone's doing. And then you get to the third part where it's like, well, we, now we have to. The Beatles are overrated or whatever, and all these sort of uh, uh, kind of bizarre. Well, no, it's not bizarre. Anyone can think anything they want, but it's like it's just a. Uh, the, I, uh, this the is Beatles different. being overrated is a bad opinion. Well, it, I'm just, just going to, I'm throwing that out. Yeah, there. It, I mean, I mean, to me, they're among the most correctly rated things that have ever existed. <laughs> like you, like you, like you definitely can't argue they're underrated, right? Or you can, uh, maybe if you're a musician or, or if there's like, if you're a, mu a musicologist, maybe you can say, actually, these songs are even better than we think. Say they're overrated. I mean, I guess they're considered the greatest band of all time by pretty much anyone who knows anything. So it's like it would be, you know, but I really feel like they are very properly rated. I mean, I feel like they're, uh, I've mentioned to this on other podcasts. I, I just find this to be just a very insightful thing. Ken Burns was talking about the Beatles and sometimes Ken Burns can, you know, kind of be grading or whatever, but he was talking about how once something doesn't exist for 20 years, interest in it starts to go down. And so it goes down a little bit to 30 years, but people still might care about it. 40 years, it goes down a little bit more. 
50 years, there's a huge drop off. And then 60 years, there's an exponential drop off because all the people who experience it firsthand are dying. And then yeah. almost everything in culture, basically after the 40 year mark, starts to rapidly sort of erode. And the Beatles aren't like that. The Beatles are the exception to this. Like the amount of interest in this series uh, is remarkable. Like, granted, it was happened at Thanksgiving and 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 people want something to talk about. And maybe it's I, I just the interest in the Beatles has decreased less over 50 or 60 years than anything else I can think of. I can't think of one other thing that has been unchanged, like the product is unchanged. And the appreciation for it is the same. I don't, I, I'd be curious if you can think of anything that would fall into this. I can't because I, mean, I think with, yeah. with music, their ability to get discovered by young people is pretty unusual because the songs are so perfectly crafted and anybody who cares about music, who's like teaching in an elementary school or high school, it, a beat, the Beatles are going to come up there's going to be a Beatles song played. Somebody who's trying to learn how to play different instruments, they're probably going to learn a Beatles song at some point. I remember my daughter, who's been singing since she was like nine, a couple years ago, one of those songs they, that she sang with, uh, I think two other people, was Golden Slumbers. And it just sent her on this Beatles run. She was like, this, <laughs> this was such a fun song to sing. I'm just going on a dive, you know? And I think one of the things in the Spotify era where you can just make your playlist of whatever versus where like there's been a couple Beatles resurgences since I've been alive and they always centered around releases of things, right? There was like CD release. That was a big thing. And then there was that time, I think in the mid 2000s, it was like, it's finally on iTunes, the Beatles. And then there's another thing. This one I think is going to be the biggest revival because, um, I think it's going to take people a while to watch this. It's eight hours. Not everybody had eight hours last weekend. Well, over the next yeah. month, I think they're going to find it. I mean, the Beatles anthology series in the '90s was a big one. It was, I think that, that, and I think that that also, to some degree, caught people by surprise a little bit. That I think that I think I believe it was on ABC, and I think the thinking was this is really going to appeal to uh, like a baby boomer audience, this is going to be something else. And it turned out it was just appealing to everyone. And yep. I think that is sort of when it really, um, I mean, like in his, in his book about the Beatles, Rob Sheffield, like directly says the Beatles are more popular now than they were in the sixties. And when I first read that, I was like, well, that's not really true, but I know what he means by that because a lot of the people who love the Beatles in the sixties are still around loving them and but passing added, it to their kids. And well, the not, not even necessarily passing it. Maybe they're finding it kind of just on their own way because the music does not seem to be aging the way other things age. I mean, it's like, okay, say a movie from the 60s, like Planet of the Apes or whatever. Right. Like you, you show someone Planet of the Apes now, and it doesn't even have to be a young person, just somebody who hasn't seen it. They're going to really recognize the parts of it that um, that seem uh, separate from now or, 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 or like that it, it will it they might love it but but not the way someone would have loved it when it came out in theaters whereas people who are f discovering the beatles seem to be appreciating it in a similar way i mean i always think led zeppelin's the ultimate example of this where it seems like every generation of people who discover led zeppelin not only like it but like it in the exact same way it was liked <laughs> right. in the 70s the beatles aren't quite like that because yeah. there are things about the beatles now that we know uh that kind of get kind of 
injected back into the music. Um, and that, but, but it's not, it's not harming it in any way. Like they're, they're, you know, the kinks made a lot of great records in the sixties, but it's not the same to listen to that music now. It just, I've, you know, it, it, I feel like I'm listening to the past where there are parts of Beatles songs right. that do not feel like the past, you know? Yeah, that's fair. I've had yeah. stages where I've gotten tired of the Beatles. I probably have enjoyed the Rolling Stones music more just personally, just because they've made more of it and it's more modern. I think they had more of an advantage. Like they basically, they get the entire seventies. The Beatles have nothing from the seventies. Right. So at the same time, I, I think, I just think the Beatles were the most important band that ever existed. And I don't think anyone's going to ever pass them either because they come along at the perfect time. They had two geniuses, which is like impossible when you think like two geniuses, the same band. And they're also so brilliant. They elevate the third guy. I don't know what happens to George Harrison if he doesn't end up in that band, right? 14-year-old George. He's just in some random band. Does he make it? I don't know. Uh, I have more stuff to discuss, but let's uh, take one more break. We got to talk about the leadership piece of this band because it was kind of looming over the eight hours of this doc. And my, my, what I always thought was that Lennon was kind of the leader, right? He was the rock of the band. But then as the years passed, McCartney kind of became more the creative leader, but everyone still deferred to John. John was kind of the alpha. They addressed this in the doc, in that teapot scene, where, they're ba where McCartney basically says like, you know, you were the leader, but now I feel like I have to step up. And he, they, then they have this really frank conversation about it. And I was like kind of, I thought the teapot scene, that whole thing was just, I, I almost couldn't believe it existed. And Lennon kind of acknowledging like, yeah, it's kind of your band now. But at the same time, the reason he's saying it is because he knows like he's checking out of the band. He just wants to be with Yoko. But that whole, that whole piece, when we talk at the top about how this doc answers these different questions, they answer that in the flower pot scene. Like they lay out anything we've ever wondered about who was in charge of the band, who was grabbing the steering wheel. It's all answered in that one scene and then the eight hours too, but especially that scene. But did you know a lot of that stuff? Well, I mean, I, I guess sort of, although not maybe to the depth that we know now after this thing. I mean, like in this movie at one time, Paul says, it's like, you know, I'm not really comfortable being the boss. Mm. The only people who say that are people who are <laughs> who want to be the boss. The boss. I mean, I, nobody, <laughs> nobody has ever said that. If you say, um, I, I think that what if it had like like Lennon was the leader in the beginning because in the beginning, their manager kind of handled everything, and they just focused on the music. And when you look at the first, really half, certainly the first third of their career. Um, he kind of was the main writer on most of the songs or whatever. And then I think what happened is Paul took over the enterprise of the Beatles, which uh, includes the music, but everything else, like, like the whole idea of, I mean, like the magical mystery tour was all Paul's idea and nobody else wanted to do it. And he was like, let's do it. He was, he seemed to be, uh, think film was a needed to be a bigger thing. He was very, I mean, just him talking about visuals. I mean, it's not surprising to hear someone like, you know, if Taylor Swift is talking about needing visuals, it's because she grew up in an, in an age where like 
MTV was already done by the time she started watching it or whatever. It's like the idea yeah. of having a, a visual component to music is a normal thing. But that was not a thing. In the, I mean, you know, it was like Elvis had made movies, but it was sort of like just can we take his celebrity? Yeah, so and move Elvis it over was here? the example yeah. where yeah, it's, it's like, like this second way to experience somebody. Yeah. Oh, and then you can see like in this doc how much they still care about Elvis. Like they care about his birthday or whatever, you know, he's at 34, yeah. I think. Or just, um, the, uh, so, so like Paul kind of took over the whole thing. So he's taking over uh, the business side. He's kind of taking over the music because now what he believes should be the trajectory of the band is an extension of Sgt. Pepper which is really his record. I mean, that's that was when he took over. That was yeah. when it all, from that point on, it was really his band. And um, and John is is like, I, I don't know. I mean, I just, I, I think unhappy is not the right word, um, but maybe a bit disinterested. Although, you know, there's this audio tape that came out, I believe, from a, a, a band meeting they had, I think in 19... 70 maybe it was 69 late you know maybe later that year um where like john does bring up the idea of the beatles making a christmas record so like he wasn't completely checked out right like he was you know uh um I, maybe, I, I mean, maybe it was the, the maybe the drugs at that point he's kind of all over the map with it and there were days where he's like hey a christmas album that sounds like a great idea and then the next day no so i'm curious just because like okay so uh you know, you started out as a writer and now you kind of, do you, do you relate to Paul? Do you feel like, does part of you see Paul and be like, I know how that is when at one point in your career, you're mostly a creative person and now you're the person who has to run everything. And of yeah. course, everyone feels differently about him because of that. Right. Like, is there a Beatle you relate to? Great question. I think what I, what I related to was the feeling of trying to keep something together, which I thought I felt like was McCartney's role in that whole thing because he could tell George was slipping away. Ringo was there no matter what. And then Lennon was the wild card and the Lennon-Yoko thing he could see. And he was very aware that they basically had three weeks or this was might go away forever. And that was relatable to me because I've probably been in situations over the years where it's like, oh shit, this might fall apart if this doesn't happen, you know? But, but in terms of like relating to him, I, the guy was like one of, one of the all-time musical geniuses. I was more like in awe of his ability to just come up with stuff. I was watching it more for that. I really wasn't watching so it for the you, big picture you, stuff. Do you then relate more to George in that way? No, I didn't relate to George at all. Yeah. George, George, I thought was the most annoying, although I did feel bad for him, but I did kind of feel that, you know, I, I kept thinking of like basketball with this. And I think there's so many parallels with basketball and rock bands, which I've talked about a million times, but George, George's inability to realize that he won the lottery by being with these two guys. I always get annoyed by stuff like that. And I shouldn't because, you know, you're, it's, you're the hero in your own story every time. And at some point, especially when you've had all the success, it's natural to think, oh, I could do this. I don't need these guys. But for him not to realize just day to day who he was with and, you know, but, he, that, but then the way they regarded him was basically like, it's a job. You're a guitarist. <laughs> You're just supposed to be, be kind of like, be like Ringo. And that was one of the things that jumped out with this doc that I was, I just had such a respect for Ringo because He's basically on call the entire time, right? And 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 they're fucking around and they're messing around and they, and then all of a sudden, 
a beat will emerge or something feels like the beginning of a song and he's just got to figure out on the fly. All right, I let me help. He's just here to help. And he his demeanor never changed and he kind of has to be that way, right? I mean, so I would say that it seems like Ringo is the person who feels like I won the lottery, even though he's you know an amazing drummer and all that. But like, I've won the lottery with these three guys. I don't yep. think that he just looks at it like that. Harrison is in this different position because, I mean, you know, I, I, well, I do think that he certainly sees those other two guys. Like he's, he's always worried that, that he's a step below them when their solo records come out. I mean, Plastic Ono Band is an amazing record, not because of the songwriting, but because of just the bizarre honesty, just like the relentlessly brutal sort of self-analysis Lennon does on this record. Uh, it, lyrically, that is just really a strange thing to, an unexpected thing to hear in a, a rock record. The, the McCarty solo records, I guess, if you look like when you start getting the band on the run, those are very good albums. But uh, All Things Must Pass is the best of the initial solo albums. Now it's a triple record and that probably is too long. Like if it was yeah. a double record, it would really be solid. But I, I, uh, I the, the sense that like, I mean, you, you could argue that they were holding him back because they don't see that material. Like he's trying out these songs on, uh, for this, for let it be like he direct, some of the songs are ready. Like all, all things must pass is ready to go if they want to do it. And they just, they just, uh, they don't see it as, I think maybe they see it as sort of in some ways a step backwards, like it's getting back to a simpler kind of, of songwriting. And they're like, well, we're trying to, I mean, you know, McCartney is always very conscious. He's like, well, this sounds rote or this sounds corny. You're like, we, we can't, this chord can't be the predictable way these chords go. Um, so the kind of just like the simple, almost like, it's kind of like Oasis like music that, that Harrison is making. I mean, that's, you know, and, and they're not, they're not, that just doesn't, it means less to them. Yeah. Can I do a forced basketball analogy? Sure. It's a little like James Harden on Durant and Westbrook versus like the Chris Bosh example. Like Chris Bosh, like ultimate third guy, right? Robert Parrish, ultimate mm -hmm. third guy in the NBA. The guy who, he knows he's never going to be the best player in the league really understands his role, understands how lucky he is, and he's just additive. Harden, you could make a case, like, at some point, if they hadn't traded him when they did, would have had that George Harrison moment where, like, I'm, I'm not playing all I could play. Um, that's my forced basketball music analogy. I watched this thinking that these guys didn't see it in him, which was another revelation. I, I don't think they thought he was that special. I thought they thought he was special for everything they had created, but ultimately replaceable. Whereas McCartney never would have said, oh, if Lennon leaves, we'll just get so-and-so. Like, it, that never happens. But the well, fact that they thought they could replace George makes me think they didn't really think he was that as talented as he turned out to be. There's there's a book written by Jeff Emmerich, who was like the engineer for a lot of the Beatles uh, material. And, and he also is, in this book, like, pretty dismissive and critical of Harrison. Like there are lines in this book, like, oh, like George got the song right on the first take, a rarity for him. Like they, mm. they, they don't, they, they, that, that they're, that within kind of the, like the bubble of the Beatles, um, the, the perception of George seemed less than the way it was perceived by the world at large, who generally I think saw him um, as, 
you know, uh, uh, like a like a real central cog in this. Like, I mean, just like the hypothetical of Harrison leaving the band and Eric Clapton making a record with them, like that's that's it's a real, kind of mind blowing. Yeah. Well, it is, and it also it's like so. Would it be? Would there? Would there be co-writes between Lennon and McCartney and Clapton? Would it have right. been like seven songs that are Lennon and McCartney? And then Clapton's music, I would it be a bluesier record? It would have to be. I mean, it would have to be bluesier than the direction they were going. Well, you kind of had that sense when Billy Preston comes in, hmm. which is another thing we should talk about. He pops in at the perfect time kind of for the recording sessions, but also for the movie. It's like this new, it's like this new character comes in. It's hmm. like, oh, cool, this guy, new person to hang out with. And he's got this infectious, amazing energy. He just, they shoehorn him in. All of a sudden it's additive. And then you hear like the the stuff that he's playing and you're like, wow, this is cool. This actually really adds stuff to the songs and leading to John like seriously asking, should we add him to the band? Should we make him the fifth Beatle? And then they, they realize immediately they would cause all these problems. But I knew that stuff, but I didn't really know it was as dramatic as them actually wondering if he should join the band. I always thought that was apocryphal. It's a, it would have been nice if he had talked a little bit more. Like he doesn't talk that much when he Why? he's he intimidated. Yes. He's with the uh, greatest well, band of all time. Yeah, but they were friends back from Hamburg, they said, because yeah. he was playing with Lil Richard. So when they met each other, they were all the same. And in fact, I would guess when they met each other, it was probably like, I wish we were playing with Lil Richard too. Like, yeah. I mean, you know, so, so I, he, I, I mean, I think he's intimidated a little bit by the cameras, it looks like. Like, Maybe. he's sort of like, what the hell is going on here? Like, you're making a record, but this is like, there's 20 cameras in here. Um, you know, uh, it's a. Uh, he but, rips you know, off he, about he 200 does, cigarettes yeah, in, in yeah. a half hour. But I, mean, like, I don't know, like, they needed his energy. I thought he really helped. And it made me wonder, like, even just him coming in and the stuff he added to a couple of their songs if the band had stayed together for the next couple of years, right? I feel like that would have been the evolution of it, almost like a TV show when it's like, all right, season six, now we're adding so-and-so. I think they would have started doing that, especially as music kept evolving and and new things were happening. And, you know, I think they just would have kept grabbing people. Well, it's you, you kind of look at that either way. I mean, like, okay, so with the Rolling Stones, they would often have people come on stage with them. Like Tina Turner would come up and sing with them or whatever, you know. Um, uh, outside of Billy Preston playing on the rooftop, it's like people didn't play with the Beatles. Like they didn't, they didn't do that. Like they were like, we, you know, um, uh, we will do this. We're just us. So I don't, I, I, I don't know if they would have, been, I mean, I guess it's an interesting idea that they just sort of become like this, like a, a, a musical machine that just adds whatever parts that they have. My favorite song on this record is I Got a Feeling, and he, and he does add to that song for sure. It would be a different yeah. song without it. Um, I One thing that was also I noticed about it is in the past, People would always say about the movie, you know, let it be. It was like they hate each other. They're fighting. But then when Billy Preston comes in, they're all in their best behavior. Actually, they were in pretty good behavior the whole time. 100 percent. They were never there was, you know, like the they're very I mean, even like when like George is like going to quit the band, he's like, I'll see you around the clubs. Like, you know, um, that's the other thing. They obviously will make in this record are working pretty normal hours. They're like working nine to five or 10 to six or something, but they're also going out at night because they come back and 
I can't remember who it was. Maybe it never specifically says, but like John Lennon saw a band and he's like, they're better than canned heat. And George is like, there was only four of them though. Isn't there normally five? So they're obviously going out to these shows around town. Um, yeah. It's just, it's a. And Glenn Johns was yeah. late a couple times because he was probably yes. out. Yeah. One thing I forgot to mention with the George thing. And I really do think this is a thing that happens and it's not just with music, but him going into that band when he did and just being around those guys, like you talked about how his first solo album, how good it was. You know, I, I do think there's some osmosis that goes on sometimes with this stuff and it could be, it could be music. It could be sports. It could be acting. You know, you end up on the right, I don't know, movie with the right two actors and you lead that experience and you're just better at it. And I do wonder with, with George, like, man, to be with those two guys, I mean, we, how many, no, he actually says that in the third one. One time he's yeah. talking to John. He's like, you always told me to do it this way. And then John was like, well, it doesn't always work out though, but it was. Right. You know. How many actual musical geniuses do you think we've had in rock? Um, well, okay. Do you think it's We're, less than 10? What we, we have to. In pot rock, okay, pop music. Okay, okay, okay. We got to establish the parameters. What, what are, do we qualify as genius in this conversation? Like what, like what does, what does it have to, what does the person have to have? Because I mean, like people will throw that term around just constantly. I mean, I, I bet if we looked on the internet right now, there's probably been 10 people this year who have been classified as a genius in pop music. Um, I think that in all likelihood, I don't know if there's even, uh, who knows if any of them are, but like, so what, what are you saying the, the criteria is for being a genius? Innovation ahead of their time, eternal. Um, okay, so you gotta be ahead of your time as well. So you can't be a genius within the formal framework of what's happening at the time. You're because doing- like Someone like, so like Jimmy Page, for example, I would say he is a genius, but um, he was working within the framework of what was happening in music at the time. Right, but Eddie Van Halen, I think we would both say is an actual was an actual musical genius. Sure, yes, yeah. And I think but Lennon no, and McCartney yeah. were both geniuses. I would say Clapton. Okay, but now, oh, I hate. I know this is just annoying, but like, so are we also are we splitting the difference between being a genius and a virtuoso? Yeah, interesting. I don't know because I, I don't know if I don't know if Clapton is a genius. He's a virtuosic, you know, virtuistic blues player. But I mean, wouldn't I don't, it, wouldn't it be I, I, part of it be the their peers at the time looking at the person going either I can't believe they're doing that or I know I can't do that would seem like that's at least a piece of this. Yeah, I guess that is true. Although uh, that's, um, I would say that's a slightly lower bar than what I would normally consider a genius. I mean, like, I, I would say someone could have made that argument about, say, Trent Reznor in the early 90s. Mm. I don't know if I would say he's genius now. I mean, it's like, like, he, he might be a technical. How like about a, Cobain? Like okay. Innovative. He would not have that characteristic, but he does have the ability to be timeless and, uh, and I mean, that would be the intangible part of this. I mean, you know, it would, there were, there are, it would be very easy to list 
a hundred people who are better at playing guitar than Kurt Cobain, but that's mm. not what the thing. That's not the thing. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, um, like Joe Satriani, Joe Satriani can play guitar better than Keith Richard. Okay. <laughs> I mean, there's no question about like, he could play, he could play every song that Keith Richards plays. Keith Richards probably couldn't play any of the songs that Joe Satriani plays without practicing. And yet we would consider Keith a genius and we might, we we considered like Joe Satriani a brilliant player. So, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, you could also, there could be someone who's a genius and that actually becomes an impediment. I mean, when you talk about being ahead of your time, if you truly are ahead of your time, you're not going to succeed. You know, I mean, like the, like some of the ideas in Pixies music, for example, like the, the, the early Pixies records are the same ideas that Kurt Cobain uses. But because yeah. the Pixies did them in the late 80s, their success hit a certain ceiling that Nirvana way surpassed. So, I mean, it's like how... I, I, I know that's a very hard question. I don't know how if I can even answer it. I mean, I would like, are we working from the premise that the Beatles have two geniuses or four? I think they have two. I think they have two. Okay. Well, um, so, so we didn't talk about the lyrics and, you know, some of the words and how some of that stuff's resonated too, you know, and it, that's a lot of times the best part about music is how people interpret the songs and apply them to their own life in whatever way, right? I would argue the Beatles more than any other musician, band, whatever, have probably had their songs impact somebody's life in some way from the words of the songs. Yeah, that's a tricky thing though. When you talk about, if you talk about interpretation being part of genius, because, okay, there's a- No, there's that, a was a, that was a yeah. slightly separate argument. I'm, I, 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 but, but like there's, I think, on, I think on the second Hootie and the Blowfish record, there's a song called, I Don't Believe in Time, okay? People make fun of Hootie and the Blowfish playing that song. If Bob Dylan has a song called I Don't Believe in Time, it's like a bumper sticker. Like, or if Jerry Garcia says that, yeah. it becomes a way people live their whole life. Yeah. And it, it, could, it could be the exact same lyrics. It's just that the music, the music does a lot. I mean, you can tell just by the way the Beatles write these songs that the lyrics are secondary to them. Like they're just kind of running through things and like they're, I can't remember what's at one point they're just running through a bunch of different words. I think it's when, uh, how about get uh, back? Yeah. They, they yes. changed that one like 10 times. Yeah. So like, so if, if the meaning of get back means a lot to a person, if the, the message to it, uh, you know, initially it's like an, like a, like a pro immigration song and by the end, it's not really anything. So if that song means something to you, it's like you made that happen. Like they well, didn't do it. How about I Lennon? Mean, eh. Lennon gave an interview after that way after that, when he's talking about get back and that, that song makes him mad because he felt Paul was writing that about him. And he was like, he had some quote where I think it was in the Playboy interview where he was like, I felt like as he was singing that he was looking at Yoko and not the rest of the band. And, but maybe I, I might've just imagined that or whatever. And then you watch how they come up with get back. And it's like, that's definitely not about John Lennon. They're yes, just like, it is not. It's that's just like trying to come up with some lyrics that fit. And he's like, I like Jojo. Jojo should be in this song. I don't know who Jojo is. I'm going to try Jojo a hundred different ways. I mean, so. they don't, you know, they don't, the Beatles don't remember this stuff the way Beatles fans do. No. So like John could be, John could very well have believed that. Like ten, after, you know, a bunch of years, he's like, I think they were singing, he was singing that at me or he hears it again and it seems like it's about him or whatever. You know, it, uh, that, uh, that was, I mean, I'm, I'm always fascinated. Like when they ask Mick Jagger, what his, what, you know, what are the greatest Rolling Stone songs? And he's like, 
Satisfaction, Jumping Jack Flash is popular. Like he just lists the most popular songs. He sees them purely as commodities. Like the idea that they would have some kind of like, like he would never say jigsaw puzzle or something like he would never do that. Like it would never, it would never occur to him for that to be a great song, um, regardless of like how he feels about it. Um, and they're the same way, I think. I mean, I don't. Um, don't you think some of that has to do with just he's been playing those songs for 50 years and now he knows those songs through the concert performances and how fans respond to them? I know. But if somebody asks you what are the favorite things you've ever written? you probably wouldn't mention just the five most popular things. I mean, maybe you would. I wouldn't. I mean, if somebody asked me. I definitely thing, wouldn't. Yeah. yeah. No, but, so, if, I mean, I, like, but I, if I was I, reading I, those things for 50 years and I was reading yeah. 20 pieces a night and certain ones got response, I think that would eventually color oh, in sure, my brain. It could. You know? or, or the fact that those songs are popular, if you keep doing them over and over again, maybe you like understand why that. I mean, like Tony Iommi says, like, he never gets sick of playing Iron Man. Like he's played thousands of times. He's like, I never get bored with it, you know? Um, well, that's every, that's yeah. one of the fun things that's happened with Billy Joel, where the songs that people love now are completely different than the songs. Like mm. his top five now are totally different than the top five somebody would have had in 1978. Yes. You know, I like mean, Vienna was yeah. not considered one of his mm -hmm. best songs. And now I think it is. That's true, because now it's like, a, oh, you know, as as. I think doing this this residency that he did at Madison Square Garden, it's like everybody who wanted to see Billy Joel has seen him now. Like yeah. he, he was, it was very easy to go see him, you know. So, so now it, the the there's still an audience for it, but the audience is now the repetition of people who have experienced sort of the obvious songs. And but now young are, people and, too. Yeah, it's it's oh, young sure. people yeah. that discovered him in rom coms and. You know, whatever, like Vienna is a very famous moment in 30, 13 going on 30, the Jennifer Garner movie. And I think that reignited that song. And now it's well, like, you know, yeah, who would have guessed that, that? That will just happen. I mean, recently, like the Mountain Goats had some old song become part of a TikTok video. And like right. the Mountain Goats almost ended up on Saturday Night Live because of this old song that was like kind of reappropriated by somebody and now it's just it just that uh, that was Fleetwood Mac too with, with dreams that was yeah. crazy like yeah. it did this whole Fleetwood Mac thing um I'm interested to see what happens with the Beatles over these next few weeks and as we said like there's been a Beatles renaissance at least once a decade the first going back to the early 80s when John died that started then and it was done in a totally different way. Like we had, I think it was eight track tapes back then, but it was a little harder to mobilize, but people were probably listening to their old albums, whatever. And then in the nineties, it meant something different. 2000, same thing. Um, and they've always kind of been around. I'm fascinated by Paul and Yoko were two of the executive producers on this, right? And I assume they had input. And one of my conspiracy theories that I don't even believe in, but I'm just going to mention to you. And people seem really happy in this, right? Like McCartney's super happy this whole time. There had to have been sessions where nobody was happy for like three hours or two hours, or it was just everybody was surly. I just, they're together day after day. They're tired. They're, it's only a couple points where, you know, one of them was McCartney's just so frustrated by George, you know, and you can just kind of see, he's like, ah, oh, fuck this guy. I got to fucking explain it to him again, blah, blah, blah. Um, there's another part where they're talking about how they can't sleep. But I do wonder, is this, do you think they asked Jackson to take anything out? I guess I would be 
pretty surprised if they would have asked him to take something out or if um, or if he would have maybe he would have. I mean, I think that that he probably said that, like, I've been looking going through this footage. It is not uh, an accurate depiction of what that movie made it seem like. You seem like you got, you know, and I think that particularly McCartney, like he does not want the lasting memory to be that he and John Lennon did not like each other. Which I mean, is something think, John Lennon seemed very focused on keeping alive until he died. Well, because he didn't think he was going to die. Like, yeah. he was still a relatively young person. It's like, like it is, uh, you know, there's all of these things. It's like, if John Lennon isn't killed, like, do they reunite at Live Aid? That's possible. I mean, that's the kind of thing they cared about. So they could have reunited there. Would it have been possible to make an MTV unplugged session with the Beatles, like how that, mm. like that would, you know, like all these things that could have happened if John Lennon had lived be, and, and they don't, and they all seem unlikely. And yet I don't know how unlikely they would be when you look at some of the things that, I mean, the idea of Ringo Starr kind of touring around with this all-star band that did not seem like something he would have done when the, well, in, think in how many unlikely, yeah. how many unlikely things have we seen in music the last 40 years, like mm. it, the Eagles getting back together. I don't think anybody would have predicted. I got to say, I do think Lennon, he's one of the few people that I could see him being like, fuck that, never. Like, had he not been shot? Because that really was his attitude for 10 years. He really kind of had disdain for people that thought the Beatles should get back together. And he was like, that was one part of my life. I moved on to a different part of my life. It's not my fault if you think we should get back together. I've already done that. I did that. I was in my teens and my 20s. I don't want to play music with those people anymore. I've moved on. I'm now doing this. And I don't know if he ever would have snapped out of that. See, I th I think he would have for, okay, here's what I think. And here again, I don't know anything that, I right. don't know anything. Impossible like, to yes. say. I think John Lennon was extremely sick about talking about the Beatles to, to journalists. And mm. I think that when he was interviewed, he took on an especially kind of antagonistic position. Jack White was the same way for a while. That anytime you asked him a question that he felt was all leading or, or an attempt to get him to sort of talk about what you wanted to talk about, he would kind of just kind of bristle and get upset. I think in a larger sense, John Lennon would have seen reuniting the Beatles as less of a big deal than we would have. I mean, that you know, that time on Saturday Night Live when Lorne Michaels is like offers them this check and George Harrison shows up like they all thought that was hilarious. And like, yeah. I think and, and, and supposedly I don't know if I believe this, but the claim is that by chance that was a night that McCartney and Lennon. No, Lennon says that there's an interview yes. where he tells the I, whole story. But you think made, and, yes. And they made, a they made a movie about it. But there somebody once later said, like, there's some kind of problems with the timing of this or whatever. But like, yeah. like, like the idea that if they would have been able to get there and somehow contact Ringo, that seems like something they would have done. It would have been a very memorable thing. So the idea of them reuniting. I think probably would have been less of a big deal than we think it would have been. So I think John, Lynn, I think I, I, my argument or prediction or whatever this would be speculation is that if John Lennon had lived, I do think there would have been a Beatles performance sometime between 1980 and 2000 at Live Aid or something or there was something. I, th I think that probably would have happened or, or, you know, if, if they would have all been around, I guess George Harrison was already dead, but like for like the like the the September 11th show, if they had been, you know, we are the world. Yeah. I think is a possibility. They yes, I think that they would have. That would have been a situation where they all might have sung, and it would be like the Beatles are back or whatever. You know, they're playing on the same song. Uh, although 
McCartney's not there, is he? Did he did he do the Bob Geldof one? Yeah, McCartney's the, not, and we yeah, are the world. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if he's if the, if like he and seems like Ringo would have definitely been like in the Bob Geldof one. It seems like very like that. Do they know it's Christmas or whatever? It seems like he would have died, but I don't know that one as much. I don't, you know, I was well, not really into that thing. I mean, I mean, not, one of the, one of the reasons that, not famine relief, but just the music right. at the time there. It's like okay, one of the reasons the Beatles, uh, yeah, I just think there's nobody like them. Is just the arc was perfect. When it ended, they left everybody wanting more, right? There, it it even was probably two years earlier. And there's been a couple of bands like this over the years. I I feel like for me, the police, the police weren't as big as the Beatles, but I feel like the police were the same way. It was so abrupt. You know, some people feel that way about Van Halen. There's been ones where it's like five years, six years. And, oh man, I wish we'd gotten eight out of them. But for the Beatles, I think it's really helped them that we oh, only got those absolutely. years out of them. It's okay, a huge so like, advantage. You know, Okay, so like Gladwell has this book out now about Paul Simon. Yeah. Okay? And he's been making, I've heard these interviews with him where he's making the argument that Paul Simon is like the greatest songwriter of the last half of the 20th century. And one of his big arguments is is his how prolific he was over time. And he compares him to Hank Aaron. You know, yep. um, that's not how it is with music. With music, it's actually the opposite. The reason the Beatles are so great is because they did all that in the smallest window of time. Like it's not it, it's it's not like sports where being good over a long period of time is better than being great for a while. It's yeah. it's you know when when the reason in sports that works is because like you watch Tom Brady over a long period of time and that's impressive. It's not like we go on Spotify and watch one game of Tom Brady to play and that's our favorite game we watch. It's like that's not how it is. Um the fact that like the Beatles did all that in such a short period of time is, uh, is I mean, of the many sort of incredible things about them, that is right up there. I mean, it is, it is such a small uh, like framework. It, it's, uh, you know, I, anytime I ever feel like, oh, I got it, like I, I'm, I'm tired or whatever, sometimes I'll just think to myself, it's like, well, God, obviously this never happened to the Beatles. They were like making a record right away. Like they would have never yeah. done that. They're like, let's go back in the studio now and just keep doing stuff, you know? And I just, um, uh, that, so that, that, like that period of time, I just, you know, it's like, I will admit in some ways watching this Beatles thing kind of bummed me out as much as I liked it. Why? <sighs> Two things. One, really made me miss hanging out some of my friends, like some of the guys in New York when we would just sit around and talk about the Beatles and talk about music. And, you know, it's like, I'm looking at the Beatles past and that's like, that's over, you know? And then it's like, but, and so that is also over. That part of my life is over. And that was such an enriching time and that's done. And the other thing is, is after watching this, I listened to the George Harrison solo record, Living in the Material World. And he has that song, you know, be here now. And the idea is like, you gotta, you know, you gotta live in the moment because the past is gone. It's just every moment is gone, you know? So you have to be here now. And it's like, <sighs> the world is fucking sucks so much now. It's like, it's so bad now, everything, culture, everything is bad. And I just, I look back at this period in the late sixties when like this was just happening all the time. It's like the Beatles are making records. Stones are making records and Zeppelin's making records. We're just about to move into this period of film that's going to be better than any period of, 
that film has ever experienced and will ever experience again. Like all these things are happening. It's just, I, 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 I watch the, you know, I, I watch the Beatles eating toast and stuff. Like all they're having for breakfast is these toast, you know? And it's like, that would never happen to someone like the Beatles now. They would never just have like a, a plate of toast or whatever. And, and, and <laughs> everything, technically everything is better now. We have all this stuff. Like, like every part of life should be better. Um, like we, I could probably make my office into a studio that would be as good as some of the places the Beatles recorded in, but it's just not the same. It's over. And I don't want to be here now. Like I, I want to be back then. I, you like, want to go to a time machine? Yet. I wasn't even born yet. Like the, the, this thing the Beatles are doing, I'm not even born yet when that happens. And, and uh, how can I be nostalgic for a period I didn't experience? And yet I am. And, and uh, I don't know. It was just like, uh, you know, I, like I'd, I'd watch this during the afternoon. I watch it on Monday afternoon, like Tuesday afternoon. My wife would be like, oh, so what'd you learn about the Beatles today or whatever? And I would be like, I didn't even want to talk about it. And I was kind of, you know, and then she'd be like, are you, you know, uh, was it not interesting? And I'd be like, no, it's great. You know, it's like, it's like, it was awesome. I loved it. But I, it, it just, it just, it, 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 this, it made me feel sad. I felt sad about it. I still feel sad talking about it. Well, you think like, the way things are now with an artist, there's so much more thought put into the perception of what you're doing versus just what you're doing. Now you could say like McCartney had that perception back then, or it's like, Hey, we have 21 days. Our backs are to the wall. Let's try to make some songs. And I might never make music with these guys again. That's it. That was there. It wasn't like he was talking with like his team about, Hey, so I, you know, everything was kind of haphazard, which was, I thought one of the cool, they ended up on a fucking roof, you know, it's cause two other things fell through and it's like, ah, what about the roof? All right. You know, and, and, and then the roof happens. And I think there's a haphazardness to this that I, I'm with you. I thought was really cool and probably doesn't exist anymore in that way. Yeah, I don't know. It's, I, I'm sure it's an imaginary thing. Like, I'm sure that people at that period were like, ah, I wish it was the late 40s. Like the war <laughs> no, I'm sure they were. It was like the war yeah. is over, you know, where we're going back. You know, it's like, you know, everything is different. People are optimistic, you know. Um, I don't I don't know why it kind of it kind of bumped me. I mean, I guess I do know. But I, well, we I, have I'm, been also, in a pandemic. I'm also conceding because it's like my life is great now. So my, yeah. like, I should, I should only be happy, you know? And, and I, I think that I think of myself as a pretty happy person, but as I watched this, I, I felt a sort of a, 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 a like a, like I wanted to was reminiscing about things, you know? Yeah. Well, the pandemic probably doesn't help. Oh, it's part of it. It's all, yeah. part. I mean, that's, that's it's like easy the, to go into a funk these days. That's kind of the foundational text for all of these other things, you know? Yeah. All right, we're wrapping up. So wait, are we gonna are we not gonna talk about Georgia and uh, Alabama? No, we ran out of time. We did. We just did an hour and a half on the Beatles. I, I got I know, but I, it's, all right, go Georgia, Alabama, really quick. Well, because here's the thing I wanted to say. I have this feeling that if Saban plays Georgia twice, he will win the second game. But if he loses this first game, will they not make the playoffs? It now seems possible. I didn't think that was going to be the case, but I think that could very well happen. And so now I have very conflicted feelings about going into this game. Who are you going to root for? 
Well, I guess I find myself really now rooting for Alabama because I want them in the playoffs. But, uh, you know, Georgia, they're averaging, they're giving up less than a touchdown a game. They're giving up yeah. 6.9 points a game. So if you double how many points they're giving up, they're still the best defense in the country because Clemson's number two at 15. So I think their defense is almost like historically underrated. I think this is maybe one of the, this might be the best modern defense that we have seen. And somehow it, it's, it's not being perceived in that way. And I'm not sure why. Like everyone Who's, concedes they have a great defense, but I, I, it does like, it's incredible. It's like, they, they're just not giving up anything. Who would be favored in that game? Who's going to be favored? Uh, yeah. Well, George is favored. I think George is, I think they're, I think it might've opened at five and a half or six and Jesus. a half. Jesus. When was the last yeah. time Alabama was given, like getting more than a field goal in the game? It had to be a while. I know. I know. It's well, pretty it's crazy. Good. It is. It's, but I, you know, it's a, uh, uh, it's going to be an interesting, I mean, there's a, like last Saturday was an interesting day of college football and this Saturday is going to be too, but uh, that you, you just check out Saturday, no college football for you. I, I watch, I monitor one game a day. <laughs> I just the, the between football, yeah. between NFL and uh, NBA, I just don't have a lot of bandwidth. So it's on, but I'm not, I can't get into it. I can't like, it pushes me over this imaginary content tipping point especially when I have eight hour Beatles documentaries to watch. That's true. The Beatles thing, like, while I feel it's the right length, it like didn't make it easy to watch. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I mean, it's it was, really intimidating. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. It was good to see you. you Happy bet. holidays. Good to see you. Thanks for coming up. All right. Thanks to Chuck and thanks to Peter Schrager and thanks to nephew Kyle, a.k.a. Kyle Creighton, the producer of this podcast. We'll be back on Sunday night with the Kez. See you then.